0: Dave Brown, right along ringside. By golly, we're about ready to go with more big action. Thank you very much, and welcome to Georgia Championship Wrestling. I'm Gordon Slowly, your host, and we have quite an hour in store for us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Championship Wrestling at ringside. This is Ben McMahon, along with wrestling's only living legend, Bruno Sammartino. Welcome to this week's edition of Mid South Wrestling Television. I'm your host, Boyd Cheers, another outstanding card.
1: Hey guys, and welcome back to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. That's right, it's 100% territory talk, each and every time out, and I am your host, a still slightly under the weather Ray Russell. I'm still fighting a cold here this week, but I'm going to power through it, making sure we continue to bring you quality programming, and this week on Regional Wrestling, guest co-host Roman Gomez, going to return to the show last time. We set the stage for 1986 in the Mid-South Wrestling Territory, Bill Watts' UWF promotion. And this week, we begin to dive into January 1986 in the Mid-South as we discuss the latest news, show results, including matches from the Sam Houston Coliseum, and we begin to take a deep dive into the TV for January of 1986. And don't forget, you guys can follow along with us if you go now and subscribe to my YouTube channel. YouTube.com slash wrestling grenade. That's YouTube.com slash R A S S L I N grenade. I've been posting all of the Mid South TV as well as the B show Mid South Power Pro, posting all the shows from 1986 in chronological order on my YouTube channel so that you guys can go back in time along with us at your leisure and watch some of the stuff we'll be covering here. Some other recent goodies added to my YouTube include a phenomenal heel promo with Lord Alfred Hayes from Championship Wrestling from Florida going back to 1980. Heel Hayes has a special surprise for Jerry Briscoe down in Florida. Alfred also mentions that he doesn't give a hoot about the NWA. Fun promo indeed. Plus, if you guys head over to my YouTube channel right now, you'll see the debut promo of the fabulous Freebirds as they have arrived in Georgia Championship Wrestling from the fall of 1980, and you'll even hear from Hulk Hogan and WWF champion Bob Backlund as they prepare for the September 1980 Madison Square Garden card. Hogan talks his matchup with Andre the Giant, special guest referee for that match, Gorilla Monsoon. Meanwhile, on the other side, WWF champion Bob Backlund discusses his opponent for the Garden. It's champion versus champion, as the WWF champ Bob Backlund takes on the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Harley Race. Again, that channel is YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. I'm uploading new footage all the time as I continue to preserve my VHS collection by converting it all to digital. Also, a friendly reminder, you can listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, along with sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, where we're in the middle of our 1987 in the WWF project over there, our latest episode, episode 80, covered May 1987 WWF News and house show results, and featured sound bites for more than 50 localized promos. Did you hear me, guys? More than 50 localized promos from Madison Square Garden, the Sam Houston Coliseum, Boston Garden, the Philadelphia Spectrum, Nassau Coliseum, Duluth, Minnesota, Sacramento, and the Arco Arena, and so much more. You can also listen to my podcast, Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, it's Raw versus Nitro as we break down the weekly Monday Night War by taking a look at both what was going on in the ring as well as what was going on behind the scenes. And yes, we even dive into those pesky TV ratings. And right now, a new season of Monday Warfare about to drop next week. The first full week of March, expect Monday Warfare to return as WCW Nitro has just began their reign of 83 weeks on top. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash have arrived And we're just six days away from the infamous 1996 Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, where we see the inception of the NWO. A fun ride indeed as we move on in the Monday Night War. All starts next week. The first full week of March here in 2023, Monday Warfare returning to the airwaves. And you guys can listen to all of those shows and more over at the WrestleCopia podcast network located at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and everywhere your streaming needs are met. From Apple to Spotify, Google and beyond. And don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts. Follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like us Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Follow us on social media for the latest goings on in the WrestleCopia podcast network. And I'm also constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. And you guys may not know this by now, but now is a great time to become a WrestleCopia patron. You can find us there at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Multiple tiers to choose from. But that $5 all-access tier is a great place to start. It includes all of my insanely detailed show notes from the Wrestling Memory Grenade Monday Warfare. And yes, now the Regional Wrestling Podcast as well. You'll also receive early access. To many of the WrestleCopia podcasts, listen days, sometimes more than a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. In fact, this particular episode of Regional Wrestling dropped three days early for our patrons. But that's not all you'll get at the all-access tier. You'll also receive remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade covering the 1989 NWA Project. And those remastered episodes include enhanced sound quality and new content and conversation. Originally edited out of the initial broadcast due to time restraints, edited right back into the show. In fact, we just added a new remastered version, Episode 4 of The Grenade, now on Patreon, covering the Shy town Rumble pay-per-view and a whole lot more. But that's still not all. You'll also receive digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure. Already dropped a dozen digital downloads here in the month of February in 2023. And of course, you guys will also receive our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series, covering many past WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday night's main events, Clash of the Champions, and so much more. And you get all of that. The insanely detailed show notes for three of the podcasts, early access, Patreon-exclusive watch-alongs, remastered episodes with new content, digital downloads, and so much more for just $5. All of that for the low, low price of just $5 a month, guys. And get this, no subscription, cancel anytime show your support, give it a try for a month, and I think you'll like the content we offer. And every penny of it goes right back in to the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please, if you can, help keep the WrestleCopia brand up and running for the months and the years to come. And with all of that out of the way, it's time to get back to 1986 in the Mid-South Wrestling Territory. Cowboy Bill Watts making his attempt at going national here as he moves away from the Irish McNeil Boys Club expanding syndication, expanding the business. And we set the stage last time we talked about the Mid-South, but now it's time to dive into January. And I had so much fun with him last time out. So let's bring him back here again for this episode. It only seemed fitting. He is the former co-host of the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast.
2: Let's welcome
1: back Roman Gomez to the show.
2: How's it going, everybody? I wanted to apologize first off for the long delay as I ended up with bronchitis and a crazy work schedule, but I'm happy to come back and do the UWF 1986.
1: Yeah, you couldn't write a better storyline. Roman contacts me, hey, buddy, I got bronchitis. It's all right, man, get better. And then just as you start texting me, hey, man, I'm getting better, then I get sick, and then I was out another week too. So, so it just prolonged things even more, and we got together, and that's all that really matters now. Yeah, I'm
2: looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, as am I. We set the stage last time and a lot of great feedback there. I want to remind everybody, over on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Wrestling Grenade, as long as the WWE gods allow it, I will continue to post all of the Mid-South Wrestling and Power Pro shows, as well as many Houston matches as well, that coincide with what we're doing here, so you guys can kind of follow along, enjoy the matches along
2: with us. I think it's going to be a really fun trip. Yeah, and, and it's great because a lot of those Houston episodes, Or Power Pro would show matches that you couldn't see on the syndicated shows. So kind of like bonus matches. And a lot of the matches were good quality matches. They weren't just squash matches.
1: Yeah, a lot of wild, great main events, steel cage matches, uh, dog collar matches. Lots of great stuff there to check out. No doubt about it. Uh, But we set the stage last time for 1986, Roman. So I don't want to leave anybody hanging. I want to get going right in to January of 1986 this week. Mid-South Wrestling, we're going to look at January 86 in the news. And right out of the gate, we see our final television taping at the old Irish McNeil Boys Club on December 4th. And now, we're taping at the bigger buildings, trying to give off a bigger feel for the Mid-South Wrestling Company. Boyd Pierce, the former announcer on the show, has been completely removed from his hosting duties at this point, replaced full-time by either Jim Ross or Cowboy Bill Watts, leading the show And now Joel Watts, the son of the Cowboy, as the co-host. So Boyd Pierce now relegated to sometimes being used as a ring announcer. Otherwise, he's been completely phased out of the company.
2: Yeah, I remember in a shoot interview, Bill Watts saying that, you know, Boyd Pierce was a heck of a great guy, a good employee, but he just kind of had a more regional sound. And they were trying to evolve into something a little bit bigger. And as we'll eventually talk about, they became the Universal Wrestling Federation a couple months later.
1: Wow, and how ironic is it that Jim Ross was let go by Eric Bischoff for, for the same reason <laughs> in WCW? Unbelievable.
2: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Bischoff did many stupid things. There's no <laughs> doubt about that.
1: So Mid South is booming. It is expanding. Roman, they're out in Amarillo, Dallas, Laredo, all over Texas, plus Atlanta, Memphis, Mobile, Alabama, Wichita, Kansas. Mid South wrestling, the syndicated programming, I mean, is really expanding and they're just not for the Mid-South anymore.
2: It was such a hot product. I mean, people all across the country loved it, so it made sense to expand a little bit and uh, see how uh, how many people would show up and see it.
1: Mid-South was really like the old-school wrestling on steroids, the old territories on steroids. Harder-hitting matches, more blood on TV, the promos were great. Uh, everything about it just felt bigger than life. And if you like that old style, that Southern style of professional wrestling that reality based wrestling
2: Yeah and, and months later they even had a steel cage barbed wire match with the Fantastics and Terry Taylor against the Sheepherders and Jack Victory and yeah. think about that for a minute a barbed wire cage match on TV yeah, that was yeah. not something that was done back then
1: And I look forward to that one when we get there for sure Uh we also have a brand new booker in town for a couple of months anyway I'm talking about Terry Taylor yes Terry Taylor agreed to come back to the region as long as you got a chance of being the booker of the territory, we're going to see how that goes over the next couple months here in the Mid-South region. Also coming into the new year, Hacksaw Jim Duggan is reportedly quote-unquote injured on the December 31st Oklahoma City show. Actually, Duggan off to New Japan for the next three weeks, but he will return by the end of January.
2: Yeah, Hacksaw was always a big uh, crowd favorite, you know, and those that may have maybe not have seen him in the UWF and Mid-South days, He was actually a pretty good worker back in 86. And outside of Andre,
1: Vince kind of put the kibosh on his guys going over to Japan after around 86 or so. But here in Mid-South, all of these guys, DiBiase, Murdoch, the Masked Superstar, Duggan, all of these guys, they're going in and out. So they're constantly getting suspended and injured and things like that. It's, it's becoming a very commonplace thing here in the Mid-South so that these guys could take their three and four week
2: trips over to new Japan or all Japan. Yeah. And it also added credibility as well. You know, when, Watts would be on commentary, he, he could mention that Dibiase had a successful stint in Japan when they did mention that they were in Japan. Right. A lot of times that was just a, a cover-up. But when they acknowledged they went to Japan, it, it made his wrestlers credible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it really did. They, they're, they're international superstars. Exactly. So we'll move on. And I did a, a long piece. I, I really encourage everybody. I'm not trying to shill all of my shows, but I encourage anybody interested in Paul Bosch and the Houston Wrestling Territory to head over to my Wrestling Memory Grenade Show. I just did a piece this week on the WWF taking over that territory in 1987, but leading in, I did 15 to 20 minutes of time discussing about the territory, how it was ran, Paul Bosch, the man, and, and all of that on the Grenade Show, episode 80. So I'm not gonna do that here again on Regional Wrestling, but I do wanna mention that the Houston Territory, by this point, Paul Bosch had always worked with other territories to bring in talent, but for the last several years here, it's mostly just been... Bill Watts and the Mid South talent coming in with a few of Paul's favorites like the Guerreros and, and thrown in between. But in the Houston wrestling department here this week, I'm going to talk about December and January. Bosch is out right now, Roman. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you were checking in on on some of the news or reading any of the tidbits heading into the new year. But Paul Bosch just underwent quadruple bypass heart surgery, and it's reported that he'll be out until sometime in February. In the meantime, Peter Burkhols, his nephew, and the Mid South crew are going to have to hold the fort down in Houston. For the time being.
2: Yeah, Burt Colts was, was okay on the mic. I, di- I didn't mind him too much. But yeah, Paul Bosch, a respected and beloved figure in the Houston area.
1: And I want to go back right now, guys, and I want to touch on some of the wrestling events that took place back in December of 86. Just, just going to run, or excuse me, December of 85. Just going to run through some of the matches on the cards, look at some of the things going on in Mid South and Houston heading into the new year quickly here. We're going to go back to the December 13th Sam Houston Coliseum Show on the undercard. I had to add this in here. The Nigerian Prince, that's a legit Nigerian Prince, guys, not uh, not the email scam. I'm talking about Depot scoring a win here in Houston. We talked about him on the last episode over Tommy Wright, but also on the show, no disqualification for the North American Heavyweight Championship. Hacksaw Butch Reed over Dick Slater. Also, a Coal Miner's Glove match. That one's out there as well, I believe. It's on my YouTube channel. Hacksaw Jim Duggan over Buzz Sawyer in a Coal Miner's Glove, leading to Buzz bloodying and leaving Duggan in a heap of his own mess in the ring They come back for a return match the following show, we're going to talk about that in a second, in a dog collar match, and that leads us to December 27th at the Sam Houston Coliseum. On the undercard, Terry Taylor returns. Scores a victory over Dr. Death's Steve Williams. Jerry the King Lawler comes down from Memphis, gets a win over the Masked Superstar under disqualification, and in that dog collar match I was talking about, well, he is the master of it after all. The Mad Dog, Buzz Sawyer, defeating Duggan this time around. So this feud, too, will continue into 1986. And so it begins here, Roman. I wanted to touch on this with you. We're going to talk about this probably a couple times here over the next little bit. The fabulous ones have arrived in the Houston and Mid-South Territory, and they score a win their first night in over the team of Hector and Chavo Guerrero on the 27th. But that's not all. For the second time in three nights, Bosch returns to Houston, December 27th, and now December 29th. On the undercard in this show, it's Dr. Death over Big Bad Bobby Duncan. Terry Taylor defeating Killer Tim Brooks, Dick Slater over North American champion Butch Reed. I believe that was a non-title match. Also, Ted DiBiase defeating his nemesis Dick Murdoch in a return match from two nights prior. This time, last time, it was the Fabs going over on the Guerrero's. This time, it's Chavo and Hector going over on the Fabs. So, as we head into the month of January, Houston essentially featuring the same feuds as we discussed on Mid-South television, save for the Guerrero's Fabulous One storyline, which is just now developing.
2: What a time to be a fan! If you lived in the Houston area, no doubt you get about to see it. him on the twenty seventh, the twenty ninth, the fifth. Yes, I mean, my God, three times in in what an eight day span? Yeah, incredible. Pretty, pretty ballsy, Paul Bosch, Well, maybe
1: that's what caused that quadruple bypass surgery. I'm not really sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was probably a lot of stress to put all that together. But I mean, what a phenomenal talent! What lineups and everything? I mean. If I lived in that area, I would have saved up my lunch money and did everything I could to go to all three shows.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny. I I always go back to my youth and uh, the the old pay-per-views, WWF and WCW pay-per-views. There was no way my grandparents were just going to purchase me a WWF or WCW pay-per-view. So I would go out and I would say, you know what, Papa, that was my grandpa. I would say, I'll come work with you today because after he retired from General Motors, he would do landscaping. He would go out to the rich suburbs and do all their yards. He grew up on a farm, so he knew how to take care of business. And I would agree to go do that, but I would count the hours. Okay, I made this much, this much. Okay, now I have enough to pay for the pay-per-view. I'm done working. But it didn't work like that, Roman. I had to finish out the day.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, how many trees did you have to trim to watch, uh, to watch a SummerSlam or a, or a Starcade? Well, back then, it wasn't too many, but at the same
1: time, you know, it's like eight-hour, 10-hour days he would put into these yards, and I was done. I was ready to go halfway through the day. I I had my money. That's all I came to work for, but it didn't work like that. I didn't get to go home. I had to finish up my day, so I had to keep that in mind, but it it was all worth it by by that night, you know, or the the next day to to be able to pay for that pay-per-view.
2: Yeah, I was pretty lucky. I had friends that normally ordered them, and they would lend me the videotape back in the day, but uh, we ordered a couple of them.
1: Okay, so... It's like you pointed out, they have a lot of shows going on right now, the 27th, the 29th. And as you said, January 5th, as we go into 1986, we're going to cover some of these Houston shows here in January as well. On the January 5th card, Sam Houston Coliseum, it's Dick Slater battling Terry Taylor to a no contest, Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer over Jake the Snake Roberts on a disqualification, Ted DiBiase, and Dr. Death Steve Williams, tag team champions over the team of Dick Murdoch and the Nightmare, and we get a two-ring battle royal, won by who else but the new booker, Terry Taylor, and what now makes match three, and it's now officially a series, a Texas tornado match sees Steve Kern and Stan Lane, the fabulous ones, defeat Chavo and Hector Guerrero. So we have something going here now, three matches in a row between these two tag teams.
2: You know, and and it wasn't just them. I mean, they could run, like we had talked about in our last podcast, Duggan and Sawyer could have wrestled every week, every month, you know, for several months, and people would have loved it. They They had the right pieces, the right talent to make that happen where you can see repeat matches.
1: Yeah, and if the matches were good, people were complaining, and they bought the storyline. The storyline was, I hate you. I want revenge. I want my win back. I want my title back. These are all logistical storylines that make sense. So, yeah, if Duggan gets beat down but he wants more, I want to see a rematch. If Duggan beats Buzz Sawyer but he gets up and leaves Duggan a bloody mess, then, yeah, I want to see a rematch. It's logical booking and storylines and that's why it was good even when people might have questioned if wrestling was real or not at the end of the day you were able to suspend that disbelief unlike you know nowadays i would say but back then even if you had that inkling that yeah this probably isn't on the level it's the story it,
2: it entrapped you and you wanted to see oh i can't wait to see what duggan does to him next time well i've said it a billion times that wrestling to me was always at its best when it made sense you know you have a good guy a bad guy if a bad guy hits the ref the crowd should be pissed not cheering him on you know i remember when tommy young would shove rick flair and the crowd would be like yeah tommy you show him who's boss right you know now the everything is just totally crazy but back then like you said you do logical things he took my title i'm gonna get it back just simple things not convoluted oh she gave birth to a hand or or you (laughs) impregnated my stepdaughter and, you know, and all this stupid stuff, it made sense back then.
1: Yeah. And you talk about logistics and things being logical. We're going to throw logic out the window here because we're going to talk just for a minute on Vince McMahon, because lastly, on this edition of Regional Wrestling, we're going to cover the January 24th Houston Coliseum show. The first time ever, the UWF and Houston wrestling territory going to go head to head with the World Wrestling Federation, Roman—I don't know if you knew that or not—both promotions running the city of Houston on the same day. Clearly, Vince McMahon trying to make a statement here.
2: Yeah, and that was not the first time he was going to come into a territory and uh, and wreak havoc, as you know. We all know it's, it's not a spoiler alert, but territories are gone. You know, courtesy of Vince McMahon.
1: So here we are, January twenty fourth, nineteen eighty six, and you get to pick where you want to go. Is it the Houston? territory or is it the WWF show we're going to look first really quickly at the WWF card Hercules over SD Jones King Kong Bundy over leaping Lanny Poffo there was a match between Sheik and Volkov versus George Steele and Corporal Kirchner sure that was a barn burner tag team champions dream team over intercontinental champion Tito Santana and Pedro Morales you got JYD taking on Terry Funk and in the main event they brought the guns anyway WWF champion Hulk Hogan defeating the macho man Randy Savage so they they stack a few names in the card here like Terry Funk, Tito Santana, and Junkyard Dog who have worked in the Houston territory before, but that's about it. You bring in the big name, Hulk Hogan, the macho man, obviously. And reportedly, and, and I got this from the Observer guys, so don't don't come after me, they drew 10,000 fans to this show here at the
2: Summit. And, you know, just looking at the rosters of those two shows, there's no doubt I would have chose Mid-South. I mean, better matchups. uh Me personally, people I like better, you know, I mentioned on the last episode how I was always a fan of Superstar Murdoch, Doc and Oss. Like, to me, that just pops more than seeing George the Animal Steel and Corporal Kirshner in a tag match. Yeah, and you know, that was really odd. Vince
1: always seemed to send a lot of his B.C. players to these towns when he was trying to take them over. I never understood that. Let's send Nikolai Volkov versus Corporal Kirchner. Let's send George the Animal Steel or Hillbilly Jim. No offense to these guys, but they're not drawing the card, and I would see that all the time back
2: then. Exactly. I mean, look at the opening match. Hercules versus S.D. Jones. You know, even though Gorilla Monsoon would try to convince you that's the main event in any arena in the country, absolutely, <laughs> I don't want to put my hard-earned money down to see Herc and Estee and Jones. Well,
1: unfortunately, I don't have a gate for their opposition here, the Houston Territory, Sam Houston Coliseum, but, but this is what Houston did, Mid-South did, to counteract Hulk Hogan versus Randy Savage here on January 24th at the Sam Houston Coliseum. On the undercard, it's Ricky Gibson over Rob Ricksteiner. I bet Rick Steiner wants that win back. Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert battling Brett Wayne Sawyer to a time limit draw. Al Perez defeating the Nightmare. Then it's DQ Mania. Four matches in a row, Roman, ending in a disqualification. Not really happy about that one. The Bruise Brothers over the Sheep Herders on a DQ. Terry Taylor defeating Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer on a DQ. The mass Superstar and Dick Murdoch defeating Tag Team Champions Dibiase and Dr. Death by DQ. And Jake the Snake Roberts. Over the North American champion, we'll get to that in just a little bit, Dick Slater on a disqualification as well. Four DQ matches in a row there. But we do get a bunkhouse battle royal at the end of the night, won by Dr. Dusty Williams. And that Fabs and Guerrero's feud continues on. Match number four in the series, a Mexican death match, won by Chavo and Hector Guerrero, defeating the Fabulous Ones.
2: Yes, and and just looking at that lineup, the mass superstar Murdoch versus Doc and DiBiase, that looks like something that you would expect to see in a Japan ring. Oh yeah. To see that in an American was just that would have been incredible. Yeah,
1: reading the that those matches for the first time when we were going into this, I'd forgotten the Masked superstar was even here at this point. So, that was a, a really good pleasure for me when I when I started doing the, the research. I'm like, "Oh yeah, Bill Eadie was there for a little bit heading into 1986." So, but when you do look at those matches, that is absolutely Japan all day long. Doc and DiBiase versus Mask Superstar and Dick Murdoch. All Japanese, all guys that worked Gaijin worked over there all the time, but not just that. I mean, they worked that style, that snug, great wrestling style.
2: Yes, and I think part of the reason you might have forgot about the Superstar, at least with me, is that there was another Masked Superstar. So it right. kind of diluted the aura, or whatever you want to call it, of the original Masked Superstar, Bill Eady.
1: Right, yeah, I and mean, we're going to get into that on the TV episodes as well. So we'll stop there for Houston this time around and we'll pick back up the next episode, Roman, with January 31st at the Sam Houston Coliseum. A lot of things happening there, and all of the following February stops in the territory as well in the city of Houston. But for now, Roman, I have a few questions for you coming out of these Houston shows. And the first question is, uh, what do you make of the Guerreros and Fabulous Ones feud? Are you digging it? Do you think that they gel well? A lot of people might see that Steve Kern and Stan Lane don't work the style of the Guerreros, but they fail to realize the Guerreros can work pretty much any style.
2: I liked it because both of them were, legit tag teams they weren't just people thrown together and they go out and have a match they were legit tag teams and for me as a fan of the fabulous ones that used to see them in person it's still kind of weird to see them as heels you know i was so used to them as the, the baby faces that would you know hug everybody and stick around after the matches and sign autographs so to go back in time and see them as heels it, even though it's been a billion years it still seems weird to see them as heels yeah, and
1: I should have pointed that out. The Fabs did come in as the Heels of Guerrero's working baby faces here. It's very unique to see the Fabs working as the Heels and some of the things they do. And I should point out, this is match number four in a match of there's like six or seven matches here in the series that culminates by the end of February. So this is going to continue on into the, the next month as well here in Houston, but it's only a Houston feud. This is the only feud going on right now in the Houston territory that doesn't transition over to the Mid-South region.
2: And that's a shame because people that, Didn't get Houston TV back in the day. I mean, they they probably would have got a kick out of this. You know, they had the loser gets painted yellow match. And then, you know, of course, all the stipulation matches, the Texas tornado, et cetera. If they had done it on the syndicated show, I think people would have popped for it. And the great part about this is you guys can go
1: to the YouTube channel and follow this entire feud outside of that Texas tornado match. Every single one of these matches aired in their entirety, I do believe on television. So it's all out there, including some great promos including some superimposed yellow lines. They try to put a yellow streak on Steve Kern while he's cutting a promo. It looks absolutely ridiculous, but it, I found it comical.
2: <laughs> yeah, they, they was a, there was some intensity in those promos too, you know, which was nice to see. So Houston hitting hard with the stars here the Mid-South region. Paul Bosch
1: relied more on the outside talent in years past, but now seems to be good with just mostly using Bill Watts' stars to book the shows from top to bottom for the most part. If you look at these shows outside of the Guerreros, which Chavo's coming into Mid-South anyway, but if you look at the card outside of that, it's all Mid-South wrestlers.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the Houston area previously would do things where they would have the NWA champ defend the belt and also the AWA champ. You know, I've got a picture of Bachwinkle and Race together with their respective world titles autographed, and my guess is that that picture was probably from the locker room in Houston.
1: That would would make a ton of sense. So uh, I had another question here. You kind of touched on it already. I was going to ask you what you make of Vince McMahon coming in and running head-to-head with Paul Bosch, but we're going to move ahead. I I, I wanted to point out, people think that Vince just came in and he took over, and it didn't necessarily work like that, especially in a lot of the southern territories. It took Vince years to pop towns like Dallas, many of the mid-south cities, Atlanta, Memphis. I'd argue that it took him until the Attitude Era to really compete with WCW in the Carolinas. If you look at
2: the gates. Yes. And, you know, wrestling fans, I mean, some can be fickle, but back in the day, there was a lot of loyalty. So if you went into Dallas, the the fans there were like, no, we want our world-class guys. We don't want to see the WWF guys, you know? So there was a sense of loyalty back then.
1: It was like the fans that watched Georgia championship wrestling. They didn't want these, these cut in pre tape matches from, from, uh, agricultural hall or wherever it may be. Uh, They wanted their studio wrestling, which Vince pulled pretty fast after he took over down there. So they got a lot of heat for that. And I've done a lot of research over the years, a lot of different years. There's a point in the early 90s where Vince just gives up going to Crockett country for several years, really until the Attitude Era when they knew they could draw again. So, you know, I I just did some numbers here doing May of 1987 in the WWF on my my Wrestling Grenade podcast. And they're doing less than a thousand fans at the Mid-South Coliseum in between two Monday night shows where Jerry Lawler's drawing 3,500 and 8,000. So, I mean, it's not just because the shows are too close together. They ran the Mid-South Coliseum every Monday night in Memphis. But Vince comes in right smack dab in the middle of two Mid-South Coliseum shows by the CWA, and he can't even draw 1,000 fans.
2: Yeah, and it's incredible when you think about it that Memphis, they would run the same arenas, you know, weeks or 52 weeks out of the year. Right. So I think about how hard that is that what you do on a Monday one week, somehow you've got to draw the fans back in the next week. You know, there wasn't the, oh, let's not go to the matches we went last week. It's like, no, let's go see it again. So, I mean, Memphis is, is uh, what they did, it, it really is astonishing, you know, if you think about it.
1: Yeah, and they did it for a lot longer than any other territory was able to get away
2: with it. And I, I think a part of it, too, was that, They were known for changing bookers. You know, Lawler would have the book for six months, then Dundee. You know, they would kind of rotate things a little bit so it wouldn't get stale. All
1: right, guys, we're going to move on. You guys are here to hear us talk about all of the Mid-South TV throughout 1986. And that's where we get to here at this point in the show. We're going to kick things off here in just a moment. January 4th, 1986 on Mid-South Wrestling Television, taped at the Tulsa Fairgrounds now. The Tulsa Fairgrounds Pavilion, Tulsa, Oklahoma, back on December 18th. 1985. It's Jim Ross and Joel Watts on commentary now. And this show, Roman, it kicks off hot. It feels big right out of the gate here. They're really trying to do something special. We kick things off. It's a quarterfinal matchup in the TV title tournament. It's Dr. Death, Steve Williams taking on Dick Slater, Dark Journey in his corner. It's announced to having a 15-minute time limit. And they report that each match, or excuse me, each match in the quarterfinal round, the men's names who advanced from the first round were pulled from a hat. So you never knew who you were going to wrestle in the following round. So very interesting addition there by Bill Watts. It,
2: it sounds good to say they were pulled from the hat, but I think we both know better.
1: Well, maybe. But there's no bracket. <laughs> maybe it was just, I don't know what I want to do yet, so we're not putting a bracket up. We're just going to, quote unquote, pull it from the hat. I don't know. But it works here for me.
2: Hey, it, it, it worked. Yeah, it was a good time. To, this t- TV tournament finally getting ready to come to an end.
1: So on commentary, I caught that Joel Watts notes that Dr. Death and Buzz Sawyer already had a match here in the quarterfinals. They went to a double countout last week, what they say on TV. So uh, somehow both guys still continued on in this tournament, still the quarterfinals. I wrote WTF? Like, what the fuck? Whatever, man. I'm not going to question it. I got Doc versus Dick Slater on my TV screen. And the match gets going. A feeling out process to start. Dick Slater busts out his variation of the Russian leg sweep early on. And then a swinging breaker gets him too and then they do this great struggle spot they didn't just go right into a boston crab dick slater had to fight for this boston crab here love the realism as dr death finally fights his way out and the match continues on the two men trading blows dr death winds up fired up and dock on the offense but slater counters with a back suplex both men down as we head into a commercial break and then i talk about that realism back from break here we go we talked about this last episode Dr. Death botches a sleeper. Dickie Slater trying to go for the sleeper hold. Dr. Death takes a bump on it. Joel Watts quickly covers it up, clearly coached by Pops the Cowboy, explaining the mistake using logical reasoning.
2: There's a thought. Hey, like you said, he learned from his Pops. You know, you got to explain it to try to make it look a little more convincing.
1: What did you call Bill Watts? The great explainer? Is that what you called him last time around?
2: Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> he, he could explain anything. You know, it didn't matter. You could throw any scenario at him. He could come up with a counter argument or a reason why something happened.
1: I love him for that. And Joel Watts tries his best here to explain this bump. Initially, or excuse me, eventually Slater does lock in that sleeper hole. Dr. Death, though, breaks it by running forward, driving Dick Slater face first into the turnbuckle. Doc comes back, a pair of shoulder tackles. The two men begin trading blows again till a double knockdown. Both guys out on their feet. Dr. Death makes the big comeback yet again, delayed suplex, and three falling headbutts into the chest of Dick Slater, but Slater manages to get his foot on the ropes during the pinfall cover. So what does the Doc do next? Prescription for the Oklahoma Stampede! And down goes Slater, you know he's not getting up, Roman. One, two, but Dick Slater with his foot on the ropes yet again. Doc, you gotta learn here. And now it's Steve Williams' turn to go for the Boston Crab, but he's a little too close to the ropes and Dark Journey reaches in with their nails and rakes the eyes of Dr. Death. From there, though, Williams, a partially blinded Williams, I should add, tries to suplex Slater, but Dickie slides over, and an O'Connor roll by Dick Slater here, and a handful of tights gets the one, the two, and the three. Oh my gosh, it may not have been clean, but a pinfall victory over Dr. Death here on TV. Way to kick things off, and Dick Slater will advance into the semifinals. They show about 10 minutes of this matchup.
2: Yeah. And, you know, fans might not have liked the foot on the ropes or whatever, but it shows Slater as like a thinking man's champion. And then, a, you know, storyline, it can show like the inexperience of Doc for not hooking the far leg and going for the pin that close to the ropes. No, yeah.
1: And I, I totally agree with that assessment. I loved that they did that with Dick Slater because Dick Slater was one of those Ted DiBiase-like heels and that he was a, like you said, thinking man's wrestler. He knew where he was. He had ring presence both figuratively and literally not only in the gimmick, but also he knew where he was around the ring. There's ropes to use. I'm going to use in my advantage, put his foot on the ropes, not once, but twice here to escape from being beaten by Dr. Death and then hooking the tights himself to steal the win.
2: And it shows, you know, storyline wise Slater had more experience. So he should be a little smarter when it comes to wrestling against somebody like doc. And you know, the foot on the rope being close enough for dark journey to interfere and whatnot, that, It all
1: made sense. What do you make of this? We get things going. There's no doubt about it. This was done on purpose. We kick things off. You can't get much hotter than Dr. Death versus Dick Slater on free TV. It's in the middle of the TV title tournament. We get a pinfall victory, even though it's the heel. I mean, it's just, you can't ask for anything more. Just kicking off the show. This wasn't done in the feature match, quote, unquote, the feature match later in the card. They kick things off hot here. And I think they did it for a reason.
2: Well, not only kicking off the show, kicking off the year, right? You know, like what a, what a great way to get a, a main event that somebody would pay for to see in the arena and you're getting it on free TV.
1: And I don't, I don't think it was an accident. This was done right after Watts expanded into multiple new markets.
2: No. And and it's a great way to grab new fans that may have heard of mid South. And, you know, right from the get go, he went, he went for a good quality main event to try to hook the fans in.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't their best work ever, but it was fun for TV, and I sure wasn't complaining. So Dick Slater will advance into the semifinals. We also hear on commentary that Hacksaw Jim Duggan defeated the Nightmare at the end of last year in the quarterfinals, setting up a Duggan-Slater semifinal match. So it was a pretty good showing here as we kick things off. We go into a commercial break this time, localized promos, and I had to get a kick out of this one. New Orleans, Louisiana coming to the UNO Lakefront Arena. It's Ted DiBiase taking on Dick Murdoch. We get promos from both sides. They're coming for a tape-fist matchup.
0: Tape-fist. They'll get it on. Dick Murdoch versus Ted DiBiase. Ted DiBiase is ready. Here are his comments. We tape our fists. And you've been in wrestling a long time, you know
3: what a fist taped good and hard will do. That tape will bust the skin open. It'll bust it wide open. And if you keep pounding on a guy's head long enough, Dick Murdoch, it'll bust it open just about the way that ring post busted my head open, Murdoch. I was covered from head to toe. I lost so much blood that I got weak at the knees. I got so weak I wasn't sure where I was. And the next thing I remembered was waking up in a hospital with my neck in a brace. Dick Murdoch, the old saying is, what goes around comes around. Ted DiBiase is back in Mid-South, and I'm back to say, And you, my friend, are going to pay some serious dues. You know, Teddy, when we met face to face, I went out and I didn't have to use any foreign objects. I didn't have to load a glove or something and knock an individual out or an opponent out. I managed to go off to meet you face to face, but let's do one thing straight, Dibiase. We're going to tape them up, Daddy. We're going to go at it like two pit bulldogs. And if you will load your glove, go ahead. Because, Teddy, let me show you something. Getting these teeth knocked out or getting scars or stitches put in his face, it ain't going to bother me because I'm not just another pretty face from off the street, Ted, Dibiase. I am the minute you fear. And when I knock you silly, I'm going to pick you up in or outside the ring on that concrete floor, see, and I'm going to drop you on the head again. And this time, you might be out for good.
1: And I had to laugh. Dickie Murdoch, he says he's not afraid of getting his teeth knocked out, and then he actually pulls out his teeth during the promo. I love Dick
2: Murdoch. Oh, Murdoch was great. And uh, believe it or not, he was actually probably the best actor in that Learning the Rope series that was horrible uh, that the NWA put out. He was actually one of the better actors in that series.
1: Well, he had plenty of years of experience trying to be a comedian, so that, <laughs> that could, uh, could help <laughs> a little. Uh, the show goes on, though, and we learn that the, I, I guess he's still the North American champion technically here on TV. Hacksaw Butch Reed taking on Mike Scott, who was built from Alaska. Something tells me he's not really from Alaska. Nothing against Alaska. It just seems kind of odd. It's Butch Reed wearing a neck brace to the ring, Roman, but it's Scott who is almost immediately injured in this one. Butch Reed whipping Scott into the ropes and Scott's knees buckle completely, twisting his leg. He goes down, and he's clearly can't continue the matchup. Butch Reed walks over, says something to him. He speaks to Scott. Scott hobbles up to his feet just long enough to take the flying shoulder tackle of Reed. Butch Reed going to get the win here in a minute, but Mike Scott definitely injured, so something went wrong there on that whip off the ropes.
2: Yeah, and... Uh... It, it made sense too to have it be a short match since Reed, you know, had the neck brace. So it it wouldn't make sense for uh, Reed to go to a 20 minute match or anything. He wanted to get the match over quickly.
1: Now something tells me they probably had two or three minutes worth of time planned here, but uh, there was no way this dude was going. I mean, he went down; his knee was not good. Like you said, though, they had to sell Butchery's injury anyway as well. So it made sense to take it home fast. But Scott clearly injured during that matchup at the beginning of the match. Unfortunately for him. Gets his one big shot, and that's all he can do with it. Unfortunately, things happen.
2: Yeah, you know, like Dr. Death said, you know, it's not ballet, brother.
1: (laughs) You got that right. Show goes on, and for now, they're billed as the tag team champions here on TV. It's Hot Stuff, Eddie Gilbert, and The Nightmare, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, still in their corner at this point, taking on the Bruise Brothers of Porkchop Cash and Mad Dog Boyd. So Gilbert and Nightmare are billed as the tag team champions here, even though the titles have technically changed hands back in December 26th, we'll talk a little more about that as tv develops but as convoluted as the in memphis Memphisy as the Bruce Brothers gimmick was the gimmick it, it just worked for me the soul man theme the gear the suitcase with the ridiculous drawn on label i loved watching port chop cash enter the ring here mad dog boyd eh, not so much really missing the dream machine in this one
2: yeah we we talked on the last podcast about the charis- uh, charisma of the dream machine and uh yeah, yeah he, he just was a better fit but like you said the, the titles had changed hands on December 26th but that was the beauty back then there was no internet right there was no, no way b- people <laughs> people would have known about it you know there was no way they would have known so you could you could do stuff like that
1: yeah that was that was the beauty of it in every promotion I mean, there were times where I didn't realize guys were injured guys were out three four five weeks because they had already had matches taped in the bag that, they kept airing squash matches on TV, and you never even realized they were out. And like you said, title changes. We didn't know about them until they
2: showed it to us, We, unless you read it in a magazine months later. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, uh, your source of uh, information was the magazines, and they were oftentimes three months behind.
1: So we go back to this match here. It's the Bruce Brothers challenging then-champions Eddie Gilbert and The Nightmare. Porkchop Cash having all sorts of fun early on with Eddie Gilbert. The Nightmare, though, tags in, and it takes Cash two tries, but he does slam the former Moondog Rex. Then it's Boyd in, Mad Dog Boyd in for one move. A slam on Eddie Gilbert, and he tags right back to Cash. Not that I'm complaining. Porkchop Cash continues to own hot stuff when referee Carl Fergie distracted by Mad Dog Boyd for some odd reason. The Nightmare comes in and knocks Cash off the middle turnbuckle, and the heels take over, very briefly. So there's essentially no heat segment, Portchop Cash hot tags out almost immediately after getting knocked off the ropes. And Mad Dog Boyden, who hits anything moving in the ring, and we get a four-way melee, leading to Boyd with a big splash on Eddie Gilbert. It could be over, Roman. One, two, but the nightmare breaks it up. And Carl Fergie calls for a disqualification due to interference from his own partner. The Bruise Brothers going to pick up the win here by DQ in six minutes, simply because the nightmare interfered on behalf of Eddie Gilbert, stopping the pinfall. That's how realistic, whether you liked it or not, Bill Watts was.
2: Yeah, and the referee's decision actually mattered. You know, it, it, they would go and take kind of take matters into their own hands. Now, I mean, a ref could get beat up 15 times in the ring, and there's never disqualification, it seems like.
1: And I read something a while back that Vince McMahon kind of had a motto himself that if somebody comes in, whether they do it on purpose or not, for a third time that you call the disqualification, but everybody gets two tries to save their partner or do whatever in that instance in the WWF. Now, here in the Mid-South, apparently Carl Fergie has enough, and he calls for a DQ simply for the nightmare breaking up a pinfall. Think about that in today's wrestling.
2: Yeah, that's, it, it wouldn't make sense today because now it seems like every tag match is a Texas tornado, whether it's called that or not.
1: And the Bruce Brothers pick up the win on a DQ here. They celebrate by Eddie Gilbert getting splashed yet again post-match by Mad Dog Boyd one more time. And the Bruce Brothers make their own three count. Lucky for us, they don't win the tag team titles. It'll go to Doc and DiBiase before too long here. And it's back to more localized promos upcoming in New Orleans, Louisiana, January 13th. Matches like Dick Murdoch versus Ted DiBiase, tape Fist. Also, we get promos here from Dick Slater versus Jake the Snake Roberts, Terry Taylor. Also, back in the territory, talking about wrestling, Lord Humongous here. Humongous going to finish up here soon.
0: Now, ladies and gentlemen, on Monday night, January the thirteenth, seven thirty. You know, Lakefront Arena. Jake Roberts will challenge Dick Slater, the new North American Champion. Dick Slater. He won the title on New Year's Day in Tulsa, Oklahoma. At this time, let's hear these comments from the man with a DDT.
3: You see, a guy like me,
0: a guy with my background, a guy with my lifestyle.
3: A guy with my habits doesn't get a lot of shots at the National Heavyweight Championship. Now, Dick Slater, everybody knows how tough you are. Everybody knows what kind of man you are. And Journey, she does look fine. I'll let you know that right now. But see, she has nothing to do with this. You are the champion for a short time. You see, because when you step in that ring with a snake, oh, man, nobody's going to take me out. There's a long list of fools that thought they were going to take me out. Slater, I'm coming at you. For the gold, my man, for the gold.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and now these comments from the new North American heavyweight champion.
3: Baby, look at this. Look at this. You know, that looks just about as good as you do. And almost better. Now, let me tell you something right now. I told the people in the Mid-South area when I got here, I was going to accomplish something, and now I have accomplished it all. This is the prime, prime title holder of all time. Now, a lot of good men have held this title, but a lot of good men have not put my back down on the mat for it for the one, two, three. And now, Jake the Snake Roberts, the DDT I have to confront to keep this title around my waist. Well, you're not going to DDT me, Jake Roberts, and you're not going to DDT Journey, and you're not going to take this from around my baby's waist because she's
0: going to wait a long, long time. And the big creature, Humongous, will go against this man, sensational Terry Taylor. I'd like to say hello to all my friends in the Mid-South area. And yes, I'm back, and I'm back to stay. This is now my home, and I'll tell you, when I come back, I guess I picked
2: about the toughest guy in the world to come back against. Humongous, a man who's carved a wake through Mid-South, leaving bodies all over the place because the guy is awesome. Anybody that steps over the top rope and just, i tell you, he's just taking people apart. The People have seen it. Well, I know if I'm going to redeem myself in the Mid-South and come back in here to do what I want to do, That's regain my place back as a North American champion. I have to start and take care of all competitors at all levels. And humongous you are, you represent the ultimate because you are the toughest man around. Everybody's seen what you've done. And I've seen it too. Well, I feel that Terry Taylor is ready. I've never been motivated more than I am now. And I'm ready and I'm going 110% straight ahead. I have a goal and you just happen to be standing in the way. That's too bad for you because I'm on my way up.
1: And then it's back to the ring for more quarterfinal action. If you thought Dick Slater and Dr. Death was the end all be all. Well, Jake the Snake Roberts Roman versus Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer
2: on the same episode of TV.: That was something that just blew my mind as somebody that grew up watching Georgia Championship wrestling, exposed to those two and to actually see them in the same ring together, just the Mark, the fan, whatever you want to call it, in me was just like really excited, like Jake versus Sawyer: it just, oh, I can only imagine
1: all the, all the time on TBS. yeah, growing up you like you said, you you got to watch both of these guys for quite a long period of time there in Georgia.
2: Yeah, it, man, it just the thought of those two in the ring just uh, it was couldn't wait to see it.
1: This is yet also a quarter final match, so very confused here, scratching my head. Remember Buzz Sawyer went to a whatever that was with Doc before double DQ double count out. So both guys getting a second chance here in the quarterfinals. Not really sure what that's about. Favoritism by the cowboy, I say. And uh there's DDT signs and DDT shirts in the crowd here in 1986 and this isn't the World Wrestling Federation, Vince couldn't have snatched himself a bigger deal than Jake the Snake Roberts here in the spring of 86.
2: Well, you know Like, like we said on the last podcast, you couldn't deny Jake's greatness. No matter what side of the fence they were going to have him on, he was just so cool and so good at what he did. You had to cheer for him. But something I wanted to talk about, we spent so much time talking about Watts as the great explainer. Right. that well, that is, is kind of weird how they just kept letting Sawyer advance through tournament no matter what happens you know it's kind of bizarre
1: well he had his favorites no
2: doubt about it i mean i am not complaining too much i mean i love sawyer but it is kind of weird storyline when you see somebody that uh, shouldn't advance keep advancing
1: no i and i agree with you 100 percent you know as i watched this matchup i forgot how fast jake roberts could actually move pre-wwf buzz sawyer though talk about moving fast Rushing into the corner early on, Jake moves out of the way and Buzz Sawyer goes, I'm clocking it at 100 miles an hour, shoulder first into that steel post. Boy, Buzz Sawyer didn't do anything at less than 100% in that ring. Jake then naturally works the arm, good psychology there, then tries his own charge into the corner, but it's Buzz Sawyer who sidesteps this time and Jake goes flying out onto the concrete on the outside of the ring. From there, the Mad Dog suplexes Jake back into the ring to take control, but Roberts escapes a chin lock. With a nasty-looking jawbreaker, Jake then fires up with jabs and a big knee lift on the Mad Dog, but buzz Sawyer to the ropes and blocks the DDT, countering the DDT by holding those ropes. Very smart, then Sawyer backdrops his way out. Jake, though, goes over the top rope, out to the floor, causing yet another disqualification. Now, many fans may remember in WCW for a very long time, it was a DQ to throw your opponent over the top rope, same way here in many of the other territories, including the Mid-South.
2: Yeah, I was never a big fan of that rule, and I understand it, you know, because not, not every territory had the the padded blue mats on the outside or whatnot. Right. But uh, just, just thinking about Jake, you know, we were talking about the greatness of him. He's known for the DDT, but damn, his knee lift was freaking impressive. I mean, it com- it definitely compares with Mr. Wrestling 2. His knee lift could have been a finisher. It was that good.
1: Oh, and I, I agree with you totally. In fact... I just did a May 2nd, 87 edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. I encourage you guys to go watch the opening match on that show. It's Jake and Kamala. And uh, at the finish of the match, Jake lures Kamala around the ring. He chases him around back inside. Jake catches him with a really great knee lift, but it does not in there. Kamala's still staggering around. Jake goes up to the middle rope and somehow manages to hit a knee lift off the middle rope that was just absolutely amazing. Kamala obviously taking the bump after that one, but really cool to see somebody be able to to jump off the ropes and kind of lay in a knee lift and make it look real, legit. It looks so cool.
2: Yeah, if anybody could do it, it was Jake. I mean, he was such a phenomenal talent, you know, during this time. And
1: Jake will advance now into the semifinals as well of the TV title tournament. As we go on, we get a standby match. All the big matches out of the way, but there's more action here. Lord Humongous still here in the company for the time being. Oliver Humper in his corner taking on Perry Jackson, the future Action Jackson. Coming out to War Machine is Lord Humongous, nearing the end of Jeff Van Camp's wrestling career here, but got to put him over one last time on TV so that they can build Humongous up before he returns the favor to Terry Taylor, who's coming back to the territory. And Humongous attacks poor action, Jackson, and it's the Shinonomaki, the Cobra Clutch, going to pick up the wins in just 49 seconds. Humongous dominating Perry Jackson.
2: And that's the way it should have went. You know, somebody with mm-hmm. Humongous size and stature and the Cobra Clutch was a good hold for him to use, you know, because it was believable with his size, his strength. You could totally picture a man surrendering to the Cobra Clutch.
1: The show continues on. More localized promos for January 13th in Louisiana at the Lakefront Arena. We, we learned that the Masked Superstar talks about going at it with Ricky Gibson. Calls him Rock and Roll Ricky Gibson. I guess uh, a play on rock and, the Rock and Roll Express. Obviously, Robert Gibson, the brother of Ricky Gibson there. Or either Billy He just had no idea and didn't care. I don't really know. Maybe he thought he was wrestling Robert Gibson. I'm not really sure there. Also, we learned that Eddie Gilbert and Oliver Humperdinck uh, have a special third man plan to come into team with Eddie Gilbert, not the nightmare, to take on the team of the Bruise Brothers. We hear from the Bruise Brothers who say they got to beat three men's coming up at the uh, Lakefront Arena. They're talking about Humperdinck, Gilbert, and this mystery partner who winds up being Gustavo Mendoza, we learned.
0: 730. Ted DiBiase against Dick Murdoch, take fifth. You'll see Jake Roberts challenge Dick Slater for the North American Heavyweight Championship. Dr. Nesty Williams collides with Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer. It's Terry Taylor against Humongous. Ricky Gibson against the mass Superstar. And the Bruise Brothers will go against three men. Sir Oliver Humperdinck, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, and the Cuban Assassin. Plus, ladies and gentlemen, you see Al Perez and Brett Sawyer in tag action and much more. At this time, let's hear some comments. I'm the number one masked man in all, of professional all over the professional wrestling
3: world, and I come to Mid South Wrestling, and they give me a rock and roll star to wrestle—a Gibson, famed from the Gibson family, rock and roll guitars, loud bands, and everything. This is professional wrestling, Mister Gibson. When you step in the ring, you leave the cymbals, the drums, the guitars, and the saxophones outside on the floor. You better come to the arena with your mind straight. Don't have that Walkman blasting in your ear because I want you to hear the one, two, three count. I want you to know at the end of the match that you're now a professional wrestler, that you're now not a rock and roll star and you can call your brother. Maybe he can play you a tune.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear these very interesting comments.
3: You want a good laugh? Three against two, that's a good laugh. Yeah, Humperdinck is gonna put on the wrestling tights and step into the squared circle with the Bruce brothers, but I'm not coming unarmed, daddy-o! No, I'm gonna come prepared! Because I'm bringing hot stuff Eddie Gilbert and my good friend Gustavo Mendoza with me! He is, as you know, the Cuban assassin and we're going to kick some tail when we get a hold of those Bruise Brothers, Eddie. o ain't that right? That's right, sir. You know, i got to hand it to you. How you fool everybody in Mid-South and how you fool the Bruise Brothers. Because not everybody knows, like I do, that we could very well go there by ourselves and beat the Bruise Brothers. Because a lot of people don't realize one thing. This man is the greatest wrestler ever to come out of the state of Minnesota. He's better than Steve Williams ever thought about being from Oklahoma. And we will beat the Bruise Brothers without a doubt. I know we will. And now this from the
0: Bruise Brothers.
3: Oh yeah, Chop, you know, I looked at that big sheet, man, and we got three men to go get Three men, you know that? Three. One, two, three. Three. Well, let me tell you one thing, Harper Dick, baby. Everybody been trying to get hold of you. If I get you in that ring, baby, and fall back on them ropes and drop that 285 pounds on you, your toe's gonna jump clean out of them boots you got on, baby. Cause don't nobody mess with the blues, brother. We're live and in color. Five 185 pounds of still a second appeal. And, baby, we ain't back back now, a bit. This 1985 ain't that right, top? Tell him monster. Up on the monster, like Gold. I- brother. We're gonna blood it. Somebody knows. I know that's Cause I say right Ooh, I feel good. good. Don't not get the truth. <laughs> I'm gonna say yeah. you're like somebody stop. I know that's right.
2: <laughs> yeah, and that is something that Gilbert with his mind that would be a heel thing, you know, to have a three on two advantage against the baby faces.
1: So that humongous match ended so quickly, Roman, we get another standby match. This time it's Al Perez teaming with Ricky Gibson, taking on the team of Ricky Starr. Wow, I haven't seen that name since the ICW Pafo territory. Ricky Starr teaming with Rob Ricksteiner here, the future Rick Steiner. Perez still inexplicably rocking that silly black tights thrusted upon him during that Doc and DiBiase feud. Clearly Bill Watts thought this was cool to run with, apparently, I guess we also missed Ric Flair over Al Perez at the end of last year. I forgot to mention that. with the figure four leg lock, that was on TV last week.
2: So I'm still trying to locate that episode, Roman, but I think you found it. Yes, I did. And I was actually able to successfully clean a VCR <laughs> All right. and get it working again. So I popped that tape in and converted it to DVD, and I'll be sending
1: that to you. I look forward to it. That's actually one of the episodes that's considered a lost episode right now in the trading community. Uh, Al Perez versus Ric Flair in several of the, I guess they were, first-round quarterfinal match, whatever, from the TV title tournament. Lots of good stuff on that show, so I look forward to it. I believe uh, that show was the first show outside of Irish McNeil, too?
2: Yes, if memory serves correct, it was, indeed, the very first show outside of the old Irish McNeil's Boys Club, which was such a staple in Mid-South, you know, the small arena and everything, but like we said, they're they're trying to expand and, and make the product bigger.
1: And I've said the same thing in the past about primetime turning into Monday Night Raw. I love primetime wrestling, but I get it. At the end of the day, things change. It was just time to go. And I was so sad when when I had to say goodbye to the Irish McNeil Boys Club. But I get it. I see what Bill Watts was doing here. And it does bring a different presentation, no doubt about it.
2: Yeah, and you know, it, it's something you and I can get sentimental about because we grew up on that TV studio wrestling, you know, and yeah. uh, we totally get wanting to make the product look better, have having fans see them wrestle in front of 10,000 people compared to 200 people. But it, the TV studio matches were a lot of fun back in the day.
1: Yeah. When I covered 1989 in the NWA, it broke my heart to see them move away from the studio WTBS studios to center stage. But again, I got it. I understood. We got to evolve here. We got to look bigger presentation than just studio wrestling. But like you said, it's still a sentimental thing in my heart. The old studio wrestling layout.
2: Yeah. So, so many good memories of the, as a kid, you know, watching things happen in the studio and because it was smaller, sometimes the crowd seemed probably a lot louder than what they actually were.
1: So we have this match here on TV. It's Perez and Gibson versus Ricky Starr and Rick Steiner. The babyfaces keep Rick Steiner grounded early on for the first couple of minutes, but he makes the tag out to Starr and the babyfaces go to town on him. It's a double drop kick. Not quite like his brother's Ricky Gibson, but uh, reverse step over toehold, the Gibson leg lock, if you will. Ricky Gibson going to pick up the win here. Just two minutes and 27 seconds of action.
2: And I always thought the leg lock was real cool. You know, Ricky did it. His brother Robert did it. <laughs> right. It just looked good, and it was something that not a lot of people did. And it just, it, the visual of it, having a guy's leg locked up like that where he couldn't escape, it, it just seemed very credible.
1: You know, the first time I saw Robert do that, it had to be, you know, in JCP. And the first time I saw him do that as a kid now, naturally, in my mind, How does somebody kick out of that? He should just do that to everyone from now on. You can't even escape that. In my mind, you know, it's like this guy's arching back over top of you. He's got your leg hooked. You're bent backwards. That's it. It's like the new ultimate finisher. You know, as a kid, you think like that.
2: Yeah, I remember Tito Santana doing that in Georgia, and I thought the same thing. Like, there's no way that guy can get out of it. He's got his leg locked and bent in that position. It's like, what a great finisher.
1: And as we close out this edition of Mid-South Wrestling, it's part two of Punishment and Pro Wrestling, another VTR here done up by Joel Watts, I'm sure on behest of Cowboy Bill Watts. Remember the first one? It was done so well, all of those legitimate injuries and and nasty blows in the ring, the first video that went out of this Punishment and Pro Wrestling type video here. Uh, Basically, it's Bill Watts trying to show you guys that wrestling's real. It might be fake up there in that Mickey Mouse New York territory, but down here, we're going to show you it's real, and we're going to show you why in slow motion as people get their skulls split open.
2: Yeah, Watts always protected the business. He wanted everybody to believe that he had the hardest hitters. He was not a big fan of the cartoon gimmicky stuff. And when one of his wrestlers would leave to the Federation, he would always bash them, you know, say that they – broke down mentally and wanted to seek easier competition. Uh, That's what he said about the Junkyard Dog. You know, Watts was always a a realist and wanted the product to look real.
1: Yeah, I'll never forget when Bundy showed up in the WWF. It may not have been initially, but uh, once they started really pushing him hard, Bill Watts couldn't show Iron Mike Sharp slamming and pinning Bundy enough on his TV programming
2: down there in Mid-South. Yeah, why why not make your wrestlers look as good as possible? I mean, that's, that's the name of the game, you know. You make them look good. People want to come out and see them.
1: So we get a bunch of clips here. One of them notable is Jake Roberts with the short arm clothesline, forcing a young Shawn Michaels to take a backflip bump off of that. Chris Adams and Corsario, the future Savio Vega, doing some nasty-looking super kicks. Buzz Sawyer drop kicking Don Turner's face off. Uh, Wahoo McDaniel, did you catch that when he gets the cane and it looks legitimate? He he cracks the cane literally. Over the top of the head of Eddie Gilbert and the Nightmare, some really fun stuff here in this little video, but I, I by the end of it, I felt like they started to reach. We started seeing a little more work stuff in this. Bill Watts was running out of footage of of realistic, not that I'm saying that he needed to. There's a lot of hard hitters here, but it was just it was like, all right, bill we've seen enough of this. I get it. You guys are real
2: yeah, it would have been nice in in moderation, but you know Wahoo was one of those guys like I mentioned with Bill Eady, like. If you had a friend over watching wrestling, they wouldn't look at Wahoo and go, ah, he's phony. You could hear his chops. You oh, know, yeah. you knew Wahoo was physical. <laughs> so it, it made sense to show Wahoo in this video piece.
1: So that concludes this first episode here in January of Mid-South Wrestling. Next week, if, if you didn't have enough this week, we learned that next week, Terry Taylor will return to the territory. Big time here coming up. got to keep you tuning back to Mid-South Wrestling as we move on to the following day, January 5th and Power Pro, which is kind of like the B-Show for the Mid-South Wrestling Territory, hosted by Jim Ross in his studio on commentary for this show, mostly Joel Watts and Bill Watts as well. And we kick things off TV title semifinal, December 31st from the Myriad in Oklahoma City. It's Dick Slater with Dark Journey taking on Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Slater mostly in control for this one. Really good matchup. Uh, Duggan, though, intercepts Brass Knuckles as Dark Journey tries to give him to him and pops Slater with him. Hacksaw makes the cover, gets the win. One, two, three but he still hasn't removed those brass knuckles. Haven't you learned anything by now, Hacksaw? And the referee sees the foreign object on the hand of Duggan, reversing the decision. Hacksaw Jim Duggan is disqualified. Dick Slater will advance into the finals of the TV title tournament. Show about six minutes of the match here on TV.
2: Yeah, I mean, Duggan and Slater, you know, you get marquee matchups like that. I mean, you can't go wrong. And Power Pro was a fun show there was times the format was a little weird because they would just randomly show you a match from 84 or right. something they, would, they were kind of, they were kind of all over the place but i mean you did get to see a lot of quality matches that you didn't get to see on the syndicated show and that made power pro fun and it was fun for me because we didn't get it back in the day it wasn't until my tape trading and dvd trading days that i was actually able to see that show and i'm like wow we missed a lot of good stuff that they should have shown Back in the original airing, I wish they had showed it in our market.
1: Yeah, every once in a while, you get a hidden gem. There would be a big match from around that time period, which we'll get into here in a little bit, I'm sure. But also, you would get, like you said, random matches from a couple years prior that really had nothing to do with anything. And you would even get matches from other territories like this here. Also, on this edition of Power Pro, it was the masked superstar teaming with Mr. Saito, defeating the team of Jerry Monty and Steve-O. Now, that was recorded at the Pro Wrestling USA tapings. You may be familiar with those.
2: Uh, that was at the showboat, and I was mm-hmm. there in attendance. And uh, like I mentioned on our last episode, Masked Superstar, one of my all-time favorites. So when he came into the territory, that was awesome to see. So I love the fact that they realize they have the superstar
1: here, and that it wasn't uncommon for territories to show matches of their new superstars from other territories to build them up. I thought it was a little odd that they used a tag team match in this instance. None of these other guys are coming in, Mr. Saito and the like, but Masked Superstar now here in the Mid-South Wrestling. We also get, as you spoke of, a throwback match. Terry Taylor taking on Chris Adams. Uh, Putting over Terry Taylor's return here, so that was fun. Uh, About a 10-minute match here, Terry Taylor going over on Chris Adams randomly here on PowerPro as well. And then, oh man, this is a big one. Listen to this, guys. Hacksaw Butch Reed teaming with Jake the Snake Roberts to take on the team of Dick Slater and NWA World Heavyweight Champion Rick Flair. Flair and Slater versus Butch Reed and Jake Roberts on PowerPro.
2: Talk about an all-star matchup. And then just to see Flair go into the other territory. That was, that was something that was beautiful back in the day, is that you could see Flair on a show other than NWA. You know, they would be affiliated with Mid-South, so when he would come in there, or world-class. To see the traveling world champion, Ric Flair, go into another territory was always a big thing for me.
1: So this was taped back on December 18th, 1985, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Bill Watts going to do the commentary for this tag team matchup. Ric Flair, he says, Ric Flair refuses to wrestle certain challengers, and Bill Watts is glad he is not part of the NWA. He is an independent promoter by God, and he doesn't have to cater to the egos of the National Wrestling Alliance. God, I love the cowboy on commentary here. It's North American champion Butch Reed taking on the world champion Ric Flair to start things out. Butch Reed in a neck brace for this match, but presses both heels immediately in the match, so he's selling the neck injury, wearing a neck brace, and his first moves are to press slam both Ric Flair and Dick Slater, and Butch Reed controlling the match early on. Jake Robertson, but Ric Flair drops to his knees to block the DDT, countering the DDT. Not going to take that bump from Jake Roberts. Too smart of a man as we go into a commercial break. Then back from break, the heels have control of Butch Reed, have him up against the ropes. Dark Journey even taking in some cheap shots there. One of the many old Watts rules Dick Slater suplexes Reed back in the ring and Cowboy shames referee Carl Fergie for making a three count or for making a cover. He calls it an illegal move. He says that the match should have been stopped until Jake was back on his feet to resume the matchup. Now I appreciated Bill Watts treating this as a real sport, but some of the rules really weird and and, uh, at least slowed down or hindered things, I think in a matchup. So the rule was once a wrestler exits the ring, gets dumped to the floor You have to allow him to get back in the ring and on their feet before you can resume the match. He's shaming the referee for making a count here because Dick Slater suplexed Jake back in and made a cover.
2: Yeah, I think that one was a little bit ridiculous. You know, if you've got the guy on the outside and you want to attack, I mean, that's the name of the game. You're trying to soften him up and get a victory, not be polite and courteous and allow him to get back into the ring. You know, it's just especially if you're the heel. Why would you not attack a guy on the outside?
1: Right. So Watts promoting sportsmanship here. And I appreciate the realism, the common sense of some of these rules. But again, some of these rules just aren't made for professional wrestling.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's just, when you got heels, I mean, that's their job is to break the
1: rules. So the action continues and the world champion, Ric Flair gets the figure four leg lock on hacksaw. Butch Reed Slater distracting while dark journey gives Ric Flair some extra leverage on the outside. Butch Reed though, finally turns the hold over able to break the figure four of Ric Flair, and Slater tags in right away and delivers a pile driver. Poor Betreed, first the figure four, now a pile driver. Slater, though, off the top rope, but right into a soup bone from Hacksaw, and it's hot tag time to Jake the Snake Roberts. Ric Flair tags in as well, so it's Jake and Ric Flair, the hot men in the ring. Now Jake, with a bunch of jabs and another one of those nice-looking knee lifts that we talked about, nailing the Nature Boy. Slater attacks from behind, and it's a double team from the heels on Jake the Snake. The heels run off the ropes. Butch Reed on the outside, though, tripping up Dick Slater, allowing Jake to schoolboy, the world champion. Jake Roberts rolling up Ric Flair. One, two, three. Yes, guys, Jake Roberts pins NWA world champion Ric Flair here. About 11 minutes shown here on TV.
2: You know, it shows how great Flair was. You know, he did a couple things in this match that obviously was for the benefit of his opponent for the match itself. He let Reed reverse the figure four. That was his finisher. Right. But it made Reed look good. He allowed Jake to pin him. He wasn't going to lose the title, but you know what? People see Jake pin Flair. The next time Flair wrestles Jake, people are going to go to the arena because they think Jake can be the new world champion because they just saw it on TV. And you know, Flair, it, it was... Right. No, I agree with you. If Flair used to always talk about he get a lot of heat
1: from the older NWA world champions for doing these jobs and putting these guys over, making them look like, well, more than more than the world champion at times. But Flair was smart because it just did better business. It was like, this guy can beat Flair. I, I saw him pin Rick Flair. I just saw Jake. So had Jake stuck around the Mid-South, we, if we, had, we got that match, can imagine what they could have done
2: with it. Yeah, they, they did wrestle, but yeah, not a long series. That would have been something. And just think of the promos those two could have cut. I mean, let alone the wrestling, but the promos they could have cut on each other would have been phenomenal to hear.
1: Oh, no doubt. I would. I just would have loved to see more. Unfortunately, they don't really follow this up with anything. Jake's not going to be here a whole lot much longer in the Mid-South Territory. As we close out this edition of Power Pro, Brett Wayne Sawyer taking on Broadway Joe Malcolm. Still haven't figured out why he's Broadway Joe Malcolm, but whatever. Bill Watts admits that Brett is Buzz's brother. Believe that. They've teamed together before on national TV, so he's not going to insult your intelligence. Referring to Brett and Buzz teaming up, Georgia Championship Wrestling on TV. Yes, one of your territories growing up watching.
2: Yeah, and, uh, you know, we'll always remember Brett, like you said, as being the national heavyweight champion, but his his claim to fame, let's face it, was being Buzz's brother.
1: If it wasn't for being around where Buzz was, Portland or Georgia, I don't know that Brett would have been as successful as he was, particularly in those two territories. He gets thrown a bone here and works most, I believe, of 86 here with Bill Watts, though.
2: Yeah, yeah, he was definitely thrown a bone, you know. He was uh, not a bad worker, but nobody would have uh, gave him any kind of even – probably a mid-card push if it wasn't for who his brother
1: was and uh bill watts the great explainer yet again he goes on another reality-based rant here he says brett supports his brother buzz even though he doesn't agree with the things that he does you can love your brother roman even if you don't agree with him explain away the fans questions with the most logical answers ever Uh, sometimes simplest is best bill watts does it better than anybody and he claims Brett Sawyer here is uh, rumored to be part of a upcoming junior heavyweight title tournament that we never see in the mid-south. Brett Sawyer climbing to the middle ropes in this matchup though, somehow manages to connect with a, a splash more than three quarters of the way across the ring from the middle rope. I wrote barely. Uh, easy win though for Hex or excuse me, easy win though for Brett Wayne this week. Picks up the win in about four minutes time over Joe Malcolm to close the
2: show.
3: Yeah, and uh, you
1: started to
2: say Hacksaw. He was actually Hacksaw Sawyer in Portland, (laughs) so you you were on the right track. Yeah, too many Hacksaws here (laughs) in the (laughs) Mid-South.
1: We roll on to the following week, Roman. January 11th TV taped back January 1st, so we're now in 1986, also at the Tulsa Fairgrounds Pavilion, Tulsa, Oklahoma. This week, it's Joel Watts and father, Cowboy Bill Watts, on commentary. How how nervous do you think Joel was
2: here? Oh, yeah, he was probably... uh... Shaking in his boots, I don't think Watts would have let things slide just because it was a sun you know. If, no, uh, definitely not. Probably Joel, even
1: worse, I would
2: think. Yeah, I was going to say if Joel screwed up, he probably had the hammer
1: uh lowered on him a little bit harder. So uh, Bill Watts explains right out of the gate, syndication is expanding even more. Mid South Wrestling is the number one syndicated sports show in America, and our new tag team champions are Ted DiBiase and Doctor Death Steve Williams heading into the new year. Also, we learned that Dick Murdoch is suspended for 45 days. In reality, he's gone to New Japan from November and December, but he's already back here in January.
2: Yeah, it's always great to see Murdoch, and him coming back is only going to make things better.
1: So we go back in time. We saw this on PowerPro. It's a clip from the myriad Dick Slater defeating Jim Duggan in the semifinals of the TV title tournament to advance on. So it looks like heading into the finals, it's going to be Dick Slater, the now the North American champion Dick Slater. We're going to see that in just a little bit, taking on Jake the Snake Roberts, And the finals will air here right here next
2: week on TV. And so glad they didn't have a double champion again, because that was the whole reason for the tournament. That would have been kind of that, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. I can't believe that. I can't wait to talk about that. We'll get into that in a little bit, I'm sure. But uh, we go to the ring and and this is done a little bit better than the old Reeser Bowden promos, I think. But Jim Ross in the ring for an interview, probably because of a lot bigger crowd here, I guess, with the new, Mid-South Tag Team Champions, I'm talking about Ted DiBiase and Dr. Death, Steve Williams. And after the injury Ted DiBiase suffered, nearly ended his career, he said, he realized all the money and accolades in the world mean nothing without his health. And to his surprise, he had a lot of the fans' support here in the Mid-South, thus turning Ted DiBiase babyface. So they're happy to see him back, regardless of the things he's done in the past. Ted then thanks Dr. Death for being by his side, and he hopes that they can be the people's champions here, in 1986, Jim Ross talks Doctor Death coming upon an auto accident recently. Have you heard this one, Roman? Where two people—I believe it's three people—lost, no, it was two people lost their lives. But Doctor Death and Rick Steiner tore the door off the vehicle and saved the passenger's life in the back seat. Doctor sincerely on the interview asks the fans to please buckle up, no matter how long or short the drive is. So very serious, very somber, Doctor Death when talking about this. But it's real. It's in the newspapers. It's out there. Uh, it's not just some bullshit story. Dr. Death and Rick Steiner did save, uh, I believe it was two people from a, a very nasty auto accident. Unfortunately, they couldn't save everyone.
2: This was definitely like the definition of a babyface promo, you know, yeah. by, by both men. You know, like you said, it was legit. Doc and Steiner did save people's lives. And it's just kind of funny to hear the future million-dollar man, <laughs> Ted DiBiase, Saying money means nothing. You yeah, know, I, I, I caught that too. Very, very
1: ironic, indeed. Yeah, but uh, I, I, it wasn't like your normal PSA. It wasn't a wrestler out there saying, "Don't do drugs, kids. Don't drink and drive. Uh, you know, buckle up." Doc never even made eye contact with the camera during this promo. Kind of looked down the entire time. Uh, but right, right place, right time. Thank God they were there to help some people out. Yeah, and and uh,
2: like you said, it, it was heartfelt. It wasn't preachy. It wasn't nagging. Right. It, it felt. Legitimately cared about people and just wanted them to be around. So he was telling them, "Use your seatbelt."
1: So they cut their big baby face promo. Now that DiBiase back from Japan or back from his injury, depending on what you want to believe. And here we are. It's our new hero tag team champions, Ted DiBiase and Doctor. That's slated to take on J.R. hogg and Sean O'Reilly. Hog worked some of the central states in the WWA territory before this, and uh looks like a, a fatter moondog spot to me. Is the best way I can describe J.R. Hogg here. We get referee Tommy Gilbert, as the Cowboy admits that Doc and DBS, he won the titles back on December twenty-six, so he's not hiding anything from anyone. Bill Watts tells more on the auto accident during the matchup on commentary. Uh, he left Rick Steiner's name out during that promo with the fans, but he includes it here. Kind of odd, Rick Steiner. Yes, he's underneath, but he's kind of been a heel on the preliminaries, whereas Dr. Death, the babyface, so maybe they were trying to save this from the local fans anyway, confusing them. Maybe they didn't want Rick Steiner to get a pop later in the show. I'm not really sure. But uh, he mentions it here on commentary. You can't really hide it. And, and Rick Steiner de- deserves to be mentioned there. Uh, Watts says, and I've read this in the newspaper article as well. These were hunters that, that got into this auto accident. Their ammo was shooting into the air from the gasoline and the exploding going on in the car. And, and they really got those guys out of there just in the nick of time. It's unbelievable to think of. Uh, but as far as the action goes, it's a uh, DiBiase locking in the figure four on O'Reilly, the tag team champions picking up the win here in about three minutes time. But I like that that Watts used this matchup to expand more on that story. Unbelievable sight to think of all of those guns, the ammunition exploding in the car on top of the wreck.
2: Yeah. And you know, something I thought about just Steiner was a, like you said, was had heel tendencies, but he was an underneath guy at this time. I wonder if it was, eddie gilbert and doc would watch be singing their praises as much because he was so protective of the business you know he didn't want baby faces and heels to be seen at a restaurant together or anything so that just kind of made me wonder like if it was eddie gilbert and doc would he be praising gilbert as a hero or just simply acknowledging doc
1: yeah that's an excellent question if it was somebody higher up on the card what would they have done really good question there roman i i'm curious too i guess we'll never know but very very good question uh, you, I know how realistic, yeah, just, you know, they talk about, you know, the Ric Flair's plane crash and how Wahoo McDaniel, they told him, you don't you can't go in there. You're a baby face. And he told them, you know, F you, I'm going to go in there and see my friend. And he, he went in there and you know, saw Ric Flair anyway. But that was just one case, uh, one small case of a wrestler, quote, unquote, breaking kayfabe going, you know, that, that life meant more than, than protecting the wrestling business. But yeah, in this instance, I wonder what Watts would have done. Good question.
2: Yeah, and, you know, and you mentioned Flair's plane crash. You know, Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods was on that flight. Right. But, you know, you couldn't have a baby face and a heel. So when the reporter asked about the name or whatever, they gave him a different name instead of Tim Woods because fans would have been like, what's going on? Why is the heels hanging out with the baby face? Yeah,
1: another good point. I forgot all about that. I read that years ago, and I forgot all about that. Yeah, wow. Yeah, blast from the past.
2: Good call, man. Yeah, you, good can't, call. you can't expose the business back then. Now, no, you know, right. the secret's out, obviously. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm then, sure. Then,
1: Twenty, thirty years ago, people would have thought it was ludicrous to change a person's name in a flight, you know, just just so that they weren't flying together. But uh, back then, like you said, man, yeah, this was real, man. It was real to me. Damn it.
2: Yeah, and that that's why it was such a big deal with Duggan and the sheet getting busted. Because even the casual fan was like, "Wait a minute, he's a bad guy. He's a good guy. Why are they hanging out?" You know, like those questions were raised.
1: The action continues on here on this episode of TV. However, it's Buzz Sawyer in the ring taking on Perry Jackson this week. I haven't even watched the match yet here, and I feel bad for Perry Jackson knowing he's going in against the Mad Dog. Let's see what happens. Buzz Sawyer immediately attacking Jackson, rubbing his face across the mat. Classic Buzz Sawyer. Then lights him up with some nasty chops before finishing him off with a power slam. Only takes a minute and 11 seconds for Sawyer to put away Jackson, but I'm sure Perry remembered that match for a while. Post-match, Mad Dog drops a trio of elbows and chokes away at Jackson as well, but he's not done yet, Roman. Nope, Mad Dog going up top for a big flying splash, putting an exclamation point on this matchup, and then bites at the throat, not the head, the throat of Perry Jackson like a Mad
3: Dog.
2: Knowing Buzz, all the stuff after the match was probably improv. I have no doubt about that. He was freaking crazy. (laughs) Yeah. He was freaking crazy, you know, I— I remember him power slamming jobbers on the concrete. Yeah. You know, yeah, in the yeah. NWA
1: and he's very famous was like, for that those nasty spots in Georgia in the studio. Oh my god.
2: Yeah. I mean, where you would hear a thud and I'm like, "Wow, did you really have to do that to the enhancement guy?"
1: Yeah, Buzz took a lot of uh, took advantage of a lot of guys throughout the years, no doubt, especially the enhancement guys.
2: Yeah, it's it's one thing to make it look real and have it be snug, and it's another thing just to be an a-hole, you know? And yeah. That was Buzz Sawyer, <laughs> that was B- Buzz the latter more than the former. <laughs> no doubt yep. about it, but hey, man, as a fan just watching,
1: damn, that was some good stuff.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I... I, ne- I never went to the kitchen to get a drink of water or anything when Buzz Sawyer was on the TV, that's for sure. Well,
1: and then, then he got what he wanted out of it, I would imagine. We head back to the ring. Jim Ross back inside for another in ring interview, this time with Dick Murdoch and the Masked Superstar. For those of you uh, who don't know much about this era in the uh, territories, that would be the future demolition acts. Masked Superstar now here where the best talent is, he says. He says he's going to be a janitor and clean up all the trash out of the Mid South Wrestling. For Dick Murdoch so that he can focus on his goals. Masked Superstar isn't a man of many words. He will say, he says he'll do his talking in the ring. Meanwhile, Dick Murdoch tries to speak, but he gets insane heat here from the crowd in Tulsa, not fans of Dickie Murdoch, the Texan. And the Masked Superstar has arrived and they kind of build him up as sort of not necessarily a bounty hunter,
2: but he's here to do Murdoch's bidding. Yeah. And, and we talked about on the last episode, as great as the Masked Superstar was, Somehow he just didn't fit here, and and it's mind-boggling because he could work with anybody, and just he just somehow seemed out of place in the Mid-South Territory.
1: Yeah, he stuck out like a sore thumb, and there's no real reason for it. He could work with anybody. Uh, he could certainly main event with DiBiase or Doctor. He could have had a great match with any of these guys. He could talk, so I just don't know what it was,
2: but it just he never really clicked here for me. Yeah, we are on the same page, you know, both fans, but, Somehow he seemed out of place, and it's weird for a guy that was just such a phenomenal talent. And much like the last time we saw the interview into
1: the tag team match at the beginning of the show, we do it again here. This time, Dr. Death and Mask Superstar morph into a match here against Tommy Wright and Steve Dahl. That's the future Stephen Dunn, and well done in the WWF. Steve Dahl also had a hell of a long run there with Rex King all around the Independence, down in Texas, up in Portland, all over the place. Uh, but Dahl is wiped out immediately in this matchup. And the Masked Superstar busts out the swinging neckbreaker. Yes, that swinging neckbreaker, the one that would eventually cost Bob Backlund the WWF title, if you believe the storylines in the WWF.
2: Yeah, and also uh, put Eddie Gilbert in the hospital, you know, when he did the swinging neckbreaker out on the concrete.
1: Yeah, on the concrete. Put Eddie Gilbert out. Eddie's here now. Eddie should have came for revenge right here, right now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so he busts out his swinging neckbreaker here on right, but pulls him up from the cover. One, two, and pulls right up. Now, how's that not a disqualification in Bill Watt's world? And Dick Murdoch comes in, adding a little more insult to injury, a little more injury to injury here. Brainbuster by Murdoch on Tommy Wright, going to pick up the win in just a minute and a half. Good tag teaming here by Murdoch and Superstar, but again, they just feel out of place.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's something, too, just hearing you talk about it and just visualizing them pulling up the enhancement worker to administer more punishment when they could have pinned him. That was such a subtle heel move that used to be done a lot back then now they just grab a chair and beat the hell out of him after the match or whatever. Right. But back then, to have the opportunity to pin a guy and then pull him up—that was a great heat move. Right then, you know that would get a lot of heat from the crowd for doing that.
1: No, oh, yeah, and uh, these guys definitely knew how to get heat. Both of them had a uh, many years of experience in doing that. As the show goes on, Terry Taylor returns to the territory to take on the Nightmare, Randy Colley here. Oliver Humperdinck still managing the Nightmare at this point. The Nightmare. Stole the North American title from Terry Taylor back last year. And Terry is back for revenge. How's that for continuity? Terry Taylor, kind of like Hulk Hogan. I'm going to get you back, brother. Terry Taylor now got the book. And the first thing he does, he remembers that loss to the Nightmare Roman. And he's going to get it back here, no doubt about it. On commentary, Cowboy Bill Watts says, You might mistake Taylor in street clothes as a young Clark Kent, but he has the heart of Superman. (laughs) Well put by Bill Watts there, telling the story of how he wants you to perceive Terry Taylor, not a whole lot here to the match. Collie actually on his way out of the territory. So very basic heel stuff here. Taylor slides over a body slam attempt and pops the nightmare with the five arm, Terry Taylor, picking up the win in just three and a half minutes and Taylor back and better than ever gets his revenge here on the nightmare.
2: Well, it would make sense for him to want to get revenge, not only for uh, the title change, but you know, back then we were always taught that the champions made the most amount of money. Right, so if the nightmare screwed him out of the title, he screwed Taylor out of money, so why wouldn't you want revenge? No, I agree
1: with you, but I still see you know he's got the pin in his hand, and the first thing he does is uh, books himself and essentially almost a squash match here against the guy who took the title off. I just found it kind
2: of funny. Oh, well, yeah, that's you know, and like you said, he's got the pin in his hand when you're the booker, I mean, other than Rude Goulet, uh, <laughs> I don't know of many people that book that did not put themselves over, you know it's just something that it's job security. You know, if you, you got the power of the pen, you just put yourself over.
1: Yeah, and they say you you can trust nobody better than you can trust yourself. So Terry Taylor obviously going to put himself in a good position here. Are you ready for more realism, Roman? We're back to the ring for another promo. A lot of promos heavy all of a sudden here in the booking as well. I wonder if that was a Terry Taylor call or a Bill Watts thing here for the new and improved Mid South Wrestling. But Jim Ross back in the ring again with Dick Slater and Hacksaw Butch Reed. Slater acknowledges their upcoming match is for 30 days with Dark Journey, if Butch Reed can beat him. But it's non-title, and Dick Slater feels that Reed should have to put something up on the line as well, namely that North American championship. Jim Ross then reminds Slater that you can't just sanction matches here in Mid-South Wrestling. You can't just sanction a championship match by by asking for one in the ring. That's just silly. That's Vince Russo-ish. And it goes through the committee instead, namely Grizzly Smith, who just happens to be sitting at ringside, Roman. So Reed says he's a fighting champion, and he agrees to the challenge of Dick Slater, his North American title versus 30 days with Dark Journey. And Grizzly Smith, the matchmaker, just happens to be at ringside, so he gives it his okay, and the match is on. Talk about realism. Yeah, we had to slide Grizzly Smith to ringside to pull it off, but I love the line about, you can't just request a match and it happens here in Mid-South Wrestling. You don't see
2: that nowadays. No, not at all. Now somebody (laughs) makes a challenge and then you hear the announcer, you know, 10 seconds later, go, yeah, we'll have it right after the break or whatever. So, yeah, there was definitely some realism there.
1: So here it is. North American champion Butch Reed taking on Dick Slater. Dark journey in his corner. If Reed should win the match, he gets dark journey for 30 days. Probably the only unrealistic thing at the time. You can just own a woman by winning a match. But hey, man, it was Bill Watts. So I I think he saw that as realistic, perhaps. Somewhere deep back into his mind. Uh, Reed dominates early on. Big press slam on Dick Slater and some big time soup bone right hands on Dirty Dick as well. So on commentary, Bill Watts says that Ric Flair has refused to come back to the Mid-South Territory as long as Butch Reed is champion because being the champion makes Reed the number one contender. And Bill Watts putting it over like the world champion Ric Flair is afraid to wrestle Butch Reed. So pretty good storytelling by Watts on commentary. Back to the action, though. Butch Reed telegraphs a backdrop, and Dick Slater takes over, drops a big elbow across the back of the head, and lands the swinging breaker. Slater from there locks in a figure four, but eats another soup bone right, as Butch Reed comes back with a big pile driver on Dick Slater, the same move Slater used with Ric Flair to try and end Butch Reed's career. More continuity, Roman. Good storylines. It's revenge time now, says the Cowboy on commentary, Butch Reed dominating, until the two men collide cracking heads, both men down, Slater back up first locking in that figure four leg lock and they point out that Butch Reed had a knee operation within the past year so it only makes sense to go to that bad leg, bad neck and leg doesn't spell well here, doesn't doesn't sound good here for Butch Reed. Reed though manages to reverse the figure four and the crowd Roman is going absolutely nuts eating this up but Slater reaches the ropes for the break. Butch Reed then from there O'Connor roll up on Dick Slater one, two but Slater reverses it. Hooks the tights. Hey, that's how he advanced in the title tournament. One, two, three. Dick Slater celebrates the win, but no. Referee Tommy Gilbert says no fall. He caught Slater hooking the tights, and the action will continue. Butch Reed then takes back over, but misses a stinger splash, flying splash into the corner, and Slater covers one, two. Butch Reed out again, kicks him off. Dick intentionally landing on top of Tommy Gilbert. You can see it in his face. Dick Slater trying to drop an elbow on the referee as he gets kicked off of Butch Reed. Really good stuff there from Slater. Dark Journey then slides in a loaded boot. I assume it was loaded. Slater wallops it across the head of Butch Reed, getting the one, the two, and the three. New North American champion Dick Slater going to steal a win and the title in just eight minutes of action.
2: And that's when title changes were not done every day, not done every week. It was a big deal to see a title change. And just a great way to help start off the year, you know, to have a new North American heavyweight champion.
1: Yeah, and i got to point out, the North American title, that's the top belt in the Mid-South Wrestling promotion. So not only does it change hands here at the beginning of the year, but it changes hands on
2: TV. Exactly. And uh, on a side note, man, that was such a cool-looking belt to see, too, the 27 pounds of gold, and uh, it it was just a nice-looking belt.
1: Now, remember, this was taped back on January 1st, so the title changes hands on day frickin' one here in 1986. Dick Slater, the new North American champion, heading into the new year of 1986. Now, this match not only marks a title change, but it also marks Butch Reed's last night in the Mid-South Wrestling Territory. Now, he'll pop up in central states by March, until he's off to the WWF in the fall of 1986. And I'm not sure why nobody wanted Reed outside of central states, where the old saying was that you either went there to start your career or finish it. Butch Reed winds up there for much of 1986 after this North American title run. Seems a little odd, but I think Butch Reed had a
2: lot of nagging injuries in real life. Well, if memory is correct, wasn't Reed, or at least he was built from the Kansas City area, so maybe right. he just wanted to be a little closer to home? I, well, I don't know.
1: That could be it. And I believe he was from that St. Louis and Kansas City area. I've heard both in real life. So, uh, you know, I never even thought of it that way. I guess you put two and two together. That could be why as well. But uh, it's just it uh, seems odd that Butch Reed's on the top of the world here in the Mid-South and then just disappears after losing the championship. We're going to see an injury storyline coming up later on here in the month of January
2: and, as well. And, and if I could just, you know, add on to something, like what a wasted opportunity Vince had getting him and having him become the natural like just what a waste of a talent you know butch Reed deserved a lot better than what the wwf gave him
1: yeah i've been following his career there in 1987 in the wwf over on the grenade show and uh needless to say well you know i gotta be honest though reed is not looking 100 percent. there's something going on with him physically i feel like there in his wwf run that was hindering him from putting on better matches
2: yeah, that and, uh, you know, maybe the blonde hair had something to do with it, too. <laughs> uh, Who knows? That could have been it as well.
1: Uh, we close out this edition of Mid-South Wrestling for, with a standby tag team match. It's Al Perez teaming with Brett Wayne Sawyer taking on the team of Broadway Joe Malcolm and Gustavo Mendoza. Good worker there was Gustavo. So he's a newcomer here to the Mid-South region. Mendoza, also known as Grand Mendoza and Galan Mendoza and the World Wrestling Council in Puerto Rico moving forward the late 80s, early 90s. Cowboy here on commentary sells us on the reason why Brett Sawyer isn't aligned with his brother Buzz yet again, but he's here for the competition nevertheless. wonder if he would agree to wrestle Buzz. That would have been interesting had they ever done that here. What would have happened with that? Al Perez turns an abdominal stretch during the match on Joe Malcolm into a crucifix of sorts. Very cool move. Never seen it done before the way that uh, Al Perez turned this abdominal stretch down into a crucifix cover. But the match goes on, and a shit ton of quick tags by the babyfaces here. Prez busting out a power slam before Sawyer coming off the middle rope with the splash. His brother does it from the top rope. But see, Buzz does it after the match because it's illegal to come off the top rope here in the Mid-South. And we'll see that a lot with Coco as well going forward. But uh, it is a double-team move, power slam and splash combo. And the babyfaces pick up the win on Joe Malcolm in three and a half minutes.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know when you mentioned Gustavo Mendoza, just thinking about like he—he he was a fun enhancement guy to watch. You know, he had a little charisma or whatnot. He—he he was stood out from the typical enhancement worker.
1: Yeah, there was definitely a charm to his uh, preliminary heel gimmick. Uh, you could tell a lot of the guys gave him a little more uh, offense than some of the other preliminary guys. Mm-hmm. Gustavo—he was a good hand. He bumped good. He, like you said, he—he he played played up the character very well. So he had he had a personality, and that got it goes a long way. But it doesn't hurt that I don't I don't have anything on him prior to this run in mid south, which is really odd. So I have to think he worked a lot of independence down there in Puerto Rico. But I don't even know who trained him. But he came in here, and he already looked on the ball. He 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 fit in the position in which he was given.
2: Yeah, you know, and the have, having the cigar, you know, in the ring, and just the way he dressed, everything about he he looked different than your typical enhancement worker.
1: Yeah, and I love his his ring jackets. Absolutely ridiculous. He comes to the ring, and I think they say something like nuclear bombs or nuclear weapons. That, that's what his ring jacket <laughs> says. And it's just a hilarious heat getter uh, from from this undercard character. But he got it from top to bottom. He understood uh, American wrestling.
2: Hey, here it is all these years later, and we're talking about him. So it was definitely memorable, you know? I. Even though we're hardcore fans, we couldn't tell you every enhancement worker that was in the Mid-South in 86, but right. Gustavo Mendoza, we both remember.
1: Yeah, he, he was, uh, definitely had some of the better preliminary matches. He was one of those guys that you didn't leave the room for. Some of those squash matches, ah, he's fighting a jobber, and you leave the room, you, you go grab something to eat, you drink, you go hit the bathroom, whatever the case may be, but there were certain guys in every territory where, oh, this match is probably going to be pretty good. I'm not leaving the room for this one.
2: Oh, well Rip Rogers was one that when you said that immediately oh, yeah. came to mind. You know, he was he would have titles and certain promotions or whatever, but in a lot of like the NWA, he was an enhancement worker, but I never left the room when Rip Rogers was wrestling even though you knew he was going to lose because that was his role there. He was fun to watch, you know, later on in the 80s.
1: Yeah, I love the rippers. I love I love watching him even into WCW in the uh, early 90s. He was always always fun. You knew you were going to be entertained.
2: Yeah, I I met him at Cauliflower Alley and he sat at the table I was at. You know, and I told him I enjoyed his work and I was a fan and, and he looked at me and just real kind of calm and goes, Hey, I couldn't sing or dance. I had to do something. (laughs) That sounds like something Rip Rogers would say. He's all
1: over social media. He's a, he's a really good guy, but he's very outspoken.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Heck of a nice guy. We, we sat there and I was amazed. We talked for about 40 minutes and uh, just super nice guy. Yeah, it's one of the luxuries of you being out in Vegas, man, the Cauliflower
1: Alley Club. I always wanted to go to that over the years.
2: Yeah, you you get a lot of uh, opportunities that it, it's not like a, a typical meet and greet where, hey, so-and-so will be here from one to four to sign right. autographs. You walk in the memorabilia room, you don't know who you're going to bump. I walked right by Stan Hansen, didn't even recognize him years ago. Wow. And somebody wow. mentioned Stan Hansen. I go, is, is he in there? And he goes, yeah, he's the guy with the hat. I'm like, I'll be damned. I walked right by him. I went back in, you know, and talked to him for a minute, but yeah it's fun a cauliflower alley' a lot of good memories of the people I've met, and uh one bad memory, but people probably are already sick of hearing about that one. <laughs>
1: you, know, you know I don't want to go completely off topic here, but you talk about passing a wrestler, you don't recognize them back in I want to say it had to been ninety five or so. I was at an indie show and I heard a bunch of whispers from some of the the boys the the actual wrestlers saying something about Bulldog Brower was in the building and I had seen some of Bulldog Brower, not a whole lot. Clearly the end of his career is what I saw, but I always heard stories of him from my uncle or my dad or random other people that would talk about wrestling from their generation. His name always came up from this territory. Cause he was like one of the top heels in the big time wrestling in the WWA in the Cleveland and NWF territory and things. So I heard <laughs> Bulldog Brower is here where, and I, I locate him. He had been next to me repeatedly throughout the show I didn't even realize that, you know, he got a little bigger, grew a beard, looked a little different, but no doubt it was him. No mistake in those crazy eyes. And I said, uh, are you Bulldog Brower? And you should have seen his face. Like he lit up like a kid, a teenager recognized the name or recognized me. And he was so, so like happy, you know, and, and kind. And I said, would I be able to get your autograph? And he, he signed his autograph for me. And this was just a few months before he passed away. So I was very lucky to meet him. And hear, hear somebody whisper his name and realize it was him and get an autograph from Bulldog Brower just shortly before he died. Had you talked to him before you got his autograph at all while you were sitting next to him? No, I wasn't.
2: Conversation with no, because he was,
1: he was there and back. He came and he left. So I didn't, I didn't really speak to him at all until I realized, you know, that uh, this is Bulldog Brower. And, I, and even then, I never really saw him again after that throughout the night. He, he kind of went backstage and I never saw him again. So I'm glad I, I asked, are you Bulldog Brower? And I got his autograph and it was really cool
2: yeah that's neat you know i I can tell you a lot of wrestlers appreciate when people appreciate them you know i had an experience at cauliflower alley with alexis smirnoff i gave him a bunch of his old matches and everything and uh his daughter who's a friend of mine to this day thanked me and she was telling me like he was kind of concerned coming to cauliflower alley like nobody's going to remember me i wasn't the rock i wasn't hulk hogan nobody's going to remember me and then when I went up and talked to him about the the things I saw him do with the showboat and his matches, like he was, he was very grateful, you know, that I was a a fan of wrestling and that could recall stories with him. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people don't stop and think about it. Wrestlers are people too, you know, as they get a little up there in age, they're, they're grateful. People remember them and, and make them feel important. Yeah.
1: Some of them, after they retire, they want nothing to do with the business. They're bitter, whatever the case may be. Maybe they've just moved on with their life, but, like you said, other ones are just really appreciative that people remember them. They did make more of an impact than maybe they realized that they did.
2: Yeah, and you, you said people that don't want to acknowledge wrestling or anything, like two names that came to my mind were Al Madrill. That was and, the first uh, one that came
1: to my mind, too.
2: And and Sunshine. I remember reading years ago, I don't know if it was true or not, but I read that Al Madrill at that time was selling cars in California, and if somebody mentioned wrestling, like, I don't want to talk about it. And, I don't know, watching some Portland back in the day, he was funny. He had his own little show called the fiesta garden that was you know, a knockoff yeah. on Piper's right. pit, but right. yeah. it was just so funny, you know, when he would call the fans, you know, brats, you know, he would, he would tell Don Owens, don't let those little brats into the, into the arena or, you know, he was just, he was a funny guy, but he wanted nothing to do with wrestling when once he was done with it.
1: Yeah. Madrill weren't probably one of the bigger names in the territories that just never made it to that next step, but he was that next step below. No, and I'm not trying to knock him by saying that, but he was right there. The stuff he did in Portland, he worked down in Dallas a lot in the early eighties <laughs> as well. So I mean he's he yep. got around and he understood working baby face and heel, and he really surprised me, like you said during that fiesta gardens run how good of a talker he was as a heel, really good stuff al Madrill. It's unfortunate that yeah I heard that I've heard that for years as well that uh there was a period of time where he denied even being quote unquote al Madrill the wrestler, and then eventually he gave in and just says i don't I don't want to talk about that that's over and done with in my life and it's it's weird because he's you know so many other Guys out there, you would have figured he had, you know, some friendships or acquaintances and just really odd. But it's just the way it is. I don't want to stay off topic, though. We'll travel back to Mid-South here, Roman. I'm sure we'll have other days where we can talk more about some of those fun times. But um, I'll tell you something coming out of this edition of Mid-South. Bill Watts on commentary. It may not be the most polished, but he knows every little nook and cranny of how he wants his wrestlers portrayed. Like explaining away Taylor's appearance And his size, the way he looks, he may not look like a a Superman, but he's a Superman at heart. He may be a Clark kid on the outside, but he's a Superman on the inside or his backstory of the feuds. Bill Watts knows everything that's going on around here, pointing out storylines like like Butch Reed recovering from the pile driver, the broken neck. And then he gives Dick Slater a pile driver. You know, Bill Watts had that in the back of his mind. Lots of great psychology. So Bill Watts, not the greatest play by play guy. But, again, he's the great explainer.
2: And it was his product. So him on the mic, you know, he knew exactly what points to emphasize. You know, like we had talked about a few minutes ago, well, Butch Reed had, had leg problems. So it made sense that Flair would go for the figure four. You know, just it's his product. So it makes no sense for him to badmouth the wrestlers as far as their ability or whatever. You know, even the heel. He would say things like, I don't agree with their tactics, but. You know, he's a great worker, whatever, you know, it uh, it, it totally made sense to boost up and and, uh, and praise his, his talent. All right, we're going to get
1: rolling then. Uh, January 12th edition of Power Pro Wrestling, hosted by Jim Ross yet again. Bill Watts on commentary this week. We do a Mid-South Wrestling TV recap set to the Beverly Hills Cop theme. Gotta love the 80s when you can get away with just playing the old uh, <laughs> rock and roll music from the time period. Great recap job, by the way, putting over everything going on in the mid South territory. And we head to the ring tape back December 31st, 85 at the myriad in Oklahoma city. It's the masked superstar over Steve doll here. Uh, So we finally get to see the masked superstar in the ring singles competition. See what he can do on his own. He picks up the win leveling doll with that left arm clothesline. Very popular, very famous
2: left arm clothesline thrown by bill. Eadie. Yes. And you know, Steve Dahl was not a bad enhancement guy at this point. You know, he would go on to more fame in Portland as one half of the Southern Rockers with Rex King, and then you also mentioned Well Done. But uh, Steve Dahl, for those of you that had not seen him at this point in time, looks, looks kind of like a Shawn Michaels clone, so to speak.
1: You know, and i, I got to point out, on commentary, they've mentioned repeatedly that Dunn, or excuse me, Dahl, is only 19 years old here. So he's looking pretty good for a 19-year-old. He's going out there and he's paying his dues, doing the jobs, so but he's looking good doing it. He's always had that good look about him. So maybe we'll see a little more from Steve Dahl here in Mid-South before he leaves the territory. I'm not really sure there. But for now, he's uh, putting over guys, and as he should, paying his dues at 19 years old. You hear that, people in 2023? So uh, we'll move on with the show. We see Southern champion. This is back, This is tape from Florida. When Pez Watley was the Southern heavyweight champion down in Florida, taking on Mike Allen. We hear Gordon Soley on commentary along with Brian Blair here. Wattley wins this one with a big punch and ah, uh, uh, brother Pez Watley picking up the win in just a minute and 12 seconds with a right hand to Mike Allen. Jim Ross on commentary afterwards says that Pez will be here in main event action as part of Mid-South Wrestling. I wrote the next JYD question mark. Now the funny thing is here, Pez Wattley never arrives here in the uh, Mid-South Territory no, in favor of sticking with JCP Jim Crockett Promotions, they throw a little bait out there to keep Pez Watley from jumping over to Mid South, so Watley will be replaced in this spot by Coco Beware. But you can't say it was more than just talked about because we see a picture or we see a match here from Florida with Pez Watley. So clearly, Bill Watts loved his amateur style. Pez Watley could really go in the ring; he was a machine, a little on the short side, but a hell of a talent. Uh, but he never shows up because. He sticks with JCP in order to become Shaska Watley, of all things.
2: One half of the jive tones. And uh, <laughs> what I'll always remember Watley for was beating Buzz Sawyer not once, but twice on TV. And Buzz Sawyer was just, he didn't lose on TV, you know, back in the day. Right. And for him to lose twice was incredible in the same show. You go back and watch it years later, it's like, well, that clothesline looked kind of weak or whatever. But. As a, as a young person watching that, you're like, oh my gosh, Buzz Sawyer just lost again? Yeah, they, they tried to give Watley a little bit of a push, but they, he was never going to be a main event caliber guy.
1: And I was just talking recently on The Grenade about the WWF acquiring Kurt Hennig initially in early 87, but he decides not to go. He sticks with the AWA because Vern gives him the AWA championship belt. And uh, this is not exactly that situation, though. Pez Watley says, yeah, I'm coming to B- Mid-South Wrestling. But decides to stick with JCP in order to become Shaska Watley and feud with the
2: Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant. And on a side note, it's it's always it was always fun for me to see a match from another territory. Because, you oh, know, yeah. unless you had a satellite unless you had a satellite dish, we didn't get Florida. So it was kind of a treat to see a different promotion, a different style, different workers, et cetera.
1: Yeah, different announcer, different building, just a different feel. It was it felt like you were watching something you weren't supposed to be. It was so cool. And that continues on the next match here on Power Pro. The Fabulous Ones taking on, well, there's a great job team from the past, Jerry Garman and Benny Trailer from Memphis Wrestling Television. And it's Lance Russell and Dave Brown on commentary here. And the Fabulous Ones, we've already seen them in Houston. They're also on their way to the Mid-South Territory as Steve Kern punches Jerry Garman for the win here in just a minute. What is with these punches here? Wally picking up with a win with a big right hand. Steve Kern... Scoring a win here and a fabulous ones match with a big right hand. Really weird, very lame finishes to uh, promote your your guys coming into the territory. However, I will say the fabulous ones do actually arrive to the mid south.
2: Yeah, that I thought the same thing too with the punches and uh, you know I mentioned <laughs> it was nice to see a Florida match. Now you're seeing Memphis and we didn't get Memphis back in the day, so it was another kind of unexpected treat.
1: And here's something else you talked about when we watch Power Pro. They just randomly go back in time and show. Whatever they feel like. And this week, it's the, well, he was at the time the North American champion last summer, the Nightmare, taking on Dick Murdoch. The Nightmare has Eddie Gilbert in his corner from the Myriad in Oklahoma City. Murdoch busting out a flying head scissors early in this matchup. Loved whenever Dickie would do a kip up or a flying head scissors. You he just never saw it coming. But Gilbert accidentally hits the Nightmare with his cane. Then Murdoch unloads on both men with the cane and pins the Nightmare in just seven minutes. The problem is. It was a non-title match. So Murdoch wins the match, but he doesn't win the title. Odd choice to randomly throw on here because Murdoch's a heel now, and they're showing this Dick Murdoch babyface match from last summer on South TV.
2: Like we said earlier, they, sometimes they would just go off the rails and not really give an explanation.
1: It just felt like filler. We needed a match. Dick Murdoch's still here. Throw the right. match on there. I just I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they were more worried about burying the nightmare on the way out because he was leaving the company. Uh, we got a match with one of our guys beating the Nightmare. Throw it on there.
2: It it could be. It very well could be. No one wants. Who knows?
1: We also go back to April of 1985 in a no-disqualification match. Joined in progress. At that time, it was North American champion Terry Taylor. Taylor scoring a win over the Ugandan giant Kamala, who had Skandor Akbar in his corner. So no doubt about it, they wanted to put Taylor over strong. He's back in the company. Here he was as North American champion in this match from nearly a year ago pinning the big monster Kamala.
2: Right, and uh, Kamala, if memory serves correct, was was he in the WWF at this time?
1: Early 86, no. Kamala okay. comes in in the fall, so I'm not really sure where he would be right now. Would it be Dallas? Uh, okay. my, I'm not my sure. Fault,
2: my fault, I, I thought maybe it was... Uh, no, but, watch, that, that, you know, started, but that's, that's my go-to to as somebody.
1: well. Well, I had to think for a second, too. That's my go-to. Well, they're beating Kamala on TV for no reason after a year, so... <laughs> Is he in the WWF? No, not in this instance, but uh, yeah, no, definitely good thinking.
2: But, you know, it, it goes back to what you were saying earlier with Watts explaining, you know, that Taylor's not the biggest guy in the world and, you know, he's not physically imposing, but look at what he did. He just beat a monster in Kamala, you know, depending on what they build his weight as, 400 pounds, 380, whatever. Right. The little, the, the little guy just beat the big guy. So that's, that's more, a, more of a feather in the cap of Terry Taylor.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I can look at Terry Taylor any other way ever again after hearing Bill Watts say he's Clark Kent with a Superman heart.
2: So there you go. <laughs> well, the... I I'd rather I'd rather be known as that than the Red Rooster, that's for well, sure. There you go.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, good one. So we'll move on. We're going to close out Power Pro going back to the myriad in Oklahoma City. It's at the time in the fall, tag team champions Wendell Cooley and Al Perez taking on the team of the former champions at that time and current Champions now Ted DiBiase and Dr. Death Steve Williams. This match also joined in progress. And again, not sure why they chose this one. Cooley already gone from the company. Doc DiBiase now baby faces in the champions, but they throw it on here anyway. And Cooley has Dr. Death pinned, but Ted DiBiase comes off the top into Wendell's back to steal the win. Joel Watts, though, on commentary claims that Cooley and Perez were the champions here, but I'm doubting it because the ref was was handing DiBiase and Doc the belts after the matchup. So they're selling it like this took place in the fall, but I'm thinking maybe this was a little earlier than that.
2: It very well could be. Cause yeah, if they're, they're handing Doc and Dibiase the belt. Yeah. Something doesn't add up here.
1: And so like, like I already mentioned the power pro show this week, the B show doing a fun job of putting over all the guys coming in, they kick off power pro recapping everything heading going on on the mid South wrestling television show. And then they use the rest of the show to put over all the guys coming in, returning, uh, Pez Watley, the fabulous ones, Terry Taylor just returned, Dick Murdoch coming back from Japan. So I think they did a good job of getting all of those guys on the power pro show at the very least.
2: Exactly. And, uh, like I said, it was just another tool, another venue to put guys over and, uh, make people want to see, see those matches.
1: All right, guys, and Roman, I think we're going to finish up there this week. I had a fun time covering the first half of January in 1986, man. Lots of stuff already happening. Wheels turning everywhere. And next week, Roman, we're going to kick off January 18th, and we're going to talk all about the TV title finals as Jake the Snake Roberts takes on North American champion, the new North American champion, Dick Slater. And as you kind of mentioned earlier in the show, Bill Watts points out that you can't have a champion holding two belts. So what happens if Dick Slater wins the TV title tournament? Bill Watts suggests that, well, we would just have a new TV title tournament. Silly.
2: Yeah, Watts did a lot of great things, but, you know, he also did some things that made you scratch your head and just planting the seed (laughs) that we could have another tournament after this was like, oh, come on, let's not go there.
1: It was really hard trying to get through. The match was good. I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. But getting through that match while listening to Bill Watts explain that, Well, if Dick Slater wins this match, we'll just have another tournament. So what's the point of this tournament? I don't so. Yeah. He almost knew
2: Jake the Snake had to win that show. Right. And why not let a wrestler be dominant? It just makes him look better. If he can hold two belts, let him do it. And I agree.
1: And you take that TV title in two or three months down the road. You drop that belt to an up-and-comer. That's how you really get him over. He beat the North American champion, won the TV title even, doesn't get the North American title. And the, uh, the champion doesn't lose any heat, but it really builds up that up-and-comer as well. So I think you, you would get a lot more out of that than... And I'm not arguing that Jake the Snake shouldn't be the television champion. Jake, perfectly fine with the belt, any belt.
2: Well, yeah, and, and like I mentioned on the last episode, I have flashbacks to Bachwinkle and Lawler. Oh, yeah. You know, Bachwinkle right. was the AWA Southern champion. So when Lawler beat him for the Southern title, then people would come to the arena to see Lawler try to beat Bachwinkle for the world title. It, it helped elevate Lawler even more. So why not let a guy hold two belts? Like you said, you could always work something out of that. Yeah,
1: no doubt about it. So uh, we'll talk about that and a whole lot more next time here on Regional Wrestling. Roman, I appreciate you finding the time in between work and being sick. I'm just getting over mine as well. Uh, hopefully by the, by the time the next time rolls around, we'll both be back to 100%. But man, I really appreciate you finding the time, making it here today, and getting this episode done. I had a lot of fun.
2: Oh, I appreciate it, too, and uh, hopefully my voice doesn't sound too bad. I'm not 100%. I know you're dealing with uh, your throat and everything, but, yeah, hopefully next time we'll both sound uh, 100%. It it was a blast. I can't wait to do the next one already. All right,
1: thank you again, Roman. I can't wait to do this. We're going to continue on with January, head into February. So much to talk about the Dick Slater and Jake Roberts feud. Obviously, Butch Reed is gone. We're going to see a match with, I believe it was Dick Murdoch, Uh, that leads to butchery being written out of the Mid-South Territory. There's so much to talk about. Doc and DiBiase dealing with Murdoch and the Masked Superstar. Eddie Gilbert going to, well, let's just say he has some plans for Oliver Humperdinck. He hasn't forgotten about 1985. So much to discuss next time here on Regional Wrestling. So once again, Roman, I thank you.
2: Oh, my pleasure. And uh, wrestling fans, we haven't even scratched the surface. 86 is a phenomenal year, and we're only halfway through January. So there is a lot of great things still to come.
1: Oh, yeah. A whole lot more. And all right, guys, that'll wrap up another edition of Regional Wrestling here this week. We'll be back with more of 1986 in the Mid-South Wrestling Territory, the UWF. And don't forget to follow me, Ray Russell, on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. And very shortly, we'll also begin a venture into 1981 in Georgia Championship Wrestling. More on that next time here on the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories.